This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Again, Film Tank friends, and welcome in to episode 243 of our little podcast here. Uh, so, this is a bit of a special occasion, because for the last six months or so, we've been doing episodes via Skype, uh, and on this particular episode, and who knows if we'll be doing more of these here coming soon, or if this is going to be an outlier for the time being. This uh, is when we all tested positive. <laughs> Yes. Great. Anyways, uh, we are in the studio for this episode. Uh, the three of us, myself, Nick, and Toussaint, got together. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> Toussaint's ready to go. He was ready to go last week. He just came here. A day early. That's how excited he was. <laughs> I like that we're continuing this trend of just like oh, yeah. having me show my ass in front of everybody on our podcast. If you're going to pull your pants down, we're going to take a picture. Oh, my God. I mean, it was pretty glaring, I got to say. Shut up, like, it was literally, what? I'm here, and if you looked on the exact same screen without even scrolling up two messages prior, it was, I'll be there Thursday, which that day was not Thursday. I'm sorry. It's a, no, it's, 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 it's it just got to give you a little shit about it. Oh, it's, yeah. it's all good. Yeah. We're here now, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to this episode that we're going to do uh, on film top six endings. Yeah. Uh, top six uh, film endings. Yes, that's another way of yep. saying it. <laughs> the endings of our top six favorite films that have endings. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes films don't have an ending. Actually, that's not true. Mm. But it may not a satisfying ending. Literally. I was going to make a joke and be like, my favorite ending is the first scene of Memento. I swear to God, if you put that on your list, I'm going to walk out of the studio right now. <laughs> yeah. No, Christopher Nolan is on my list. Well, he, he is on one of my lists because <laughs> he's in trouble. Because <laughs> he opened Tenet in, in theaters during COVID. That mother. He aggressively opened it. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. He won't even let a drive-in play the movie if there is not a theater in the area already showing it. Wow, that is uh, yeah, anyway. that sounds like me not watching that. Yeah, the reviews have been mixed too, so that's that's not good. Yeah, yeah. it's not great. So, anyways, uh, we're talking film endings. Uh, this was a bit of a brainchild of mine, although it's you know I feel like we've talked about it for a while oh, about yeah. the possibility, but making it go forward was was definitely my doing, and uh, I'll speak more about that uh, a little bit later. Um, but before we get started, Nick, I know you wanted to mention something as uh, you and uh, our friend Dan um, have uh, started a new podcast. 
Oh my god, I wasn't prepared. <laughs> okay, uh, for the next hour, I will detail. Now, uh, yeah, a friend of the show, Dan Jeremy Brooks, and I have started a new podcast that on the very first episode of it, I called an unofficial spinoff from Film Tank. <laughs> Um, it is called Project Exploitation, and the name kind of indicates what our scope is, which is talking and really getting into the nitty gritty of exploitation cinema. Did I hear that correctly? Nitty gritty? I thought you said titty gritty. Oh, well, some films we do get into the titty gritty, but uh, we haven't done one of those yet. Okay. Uh, but no, yeah, we're mostly focused on uh, the entire uh, exploitation era of the I would say the boon of them, so to speak. So the seventies and eighties in particular, with a soft focus in the sixties and the nineties. If there's anyone that I would want to hear speak on this topic, it's you, Nick. Now we have done uh, a, at least one. I think we've done a couple episodes. I was going to say we've done two, two the, movies. The, the, the most uh, memorable episode probably was "Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff." Yes, that counts, right? Oh yeah, because that, that th- ending has stuck with me <laughs> for ever. Well, well, we're not talking about ending. Sorry. Talk about we're talking about Nick's new podcast. Sorry. But that would You're that, jumping the gun. He he's ready. He's fired up. He was ready eight days ago. Um <laughs> But that would be the kind of film you'd be reviewing on this podcast, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Literally the only two that I saw that because I kind of looked back and was like, is there anything that I would ever repeat? And honestly I would because they're two of my all time favorite films and I could talk about them differently. It would be uh, that we've already done with Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, and our segment of our special episode where we talked about the Licorice Quartet. Oh, okay. Please so. please do a follow-up episode on uh, Good, Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, because I just feel like that movie uh, bowled me over, and honestly, I wouldn't mind returning to it. It's just one It's one of those films that, that I was not prepared for. I was I was absolutely like – and that was by by, by – Intention because you yeah. told me not to look up anything about that film, yeah. and I can honestly say that I, I, I did not know what was coming. And I will say, I think that's kind of the whole uh, mission of the podcast is to dive into things that are maybe off-putting at first, whether it's just due to shitty quality mm-hmm. or actual exploitative and manipulative right. uh, premises, and seeing if there's any value underneath the grime. I so. like, yeah, that's uh, that's the the mission of criticism. Yeah, so. Project Exploitation. You can listen to the first two episodes now. Thank you very much for letting me self-promote. Yeah, no problem. R- real quick, yeah. uh, where can anyone find this podcast? So you can find it on any, at least you should be able to find it on any major platform like Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all that. Uh, if you go to our website, which is projectsploitation.wordpress.com, mm-hmm. maybe it'll get upgraded to projectsploitation.com. I don't know. I can't see the future. We'll see how many hits we get. Uh, but for right now, we're rocking that WordPress.com signature. And, uh, yeah. Um, it just flows so nice. It, it really does, doesn't it? Uh, oh, and we are on Twitter. I said to Dan, I said, I'm not going to make the same film take mistake that I made before and create, like, seven, uh, seven different, like, social media Severus. profiles. Sorry. <laughs> Severance. Wow. Severance and severance. Yeah. Severus, uh, but no, I was Severus like Snape. I'm like we have, Severance, like, come here. <laughs> this is getting a lot of mileage. Come here to die. Oh boy! Did you uh, find my nose? Oh boy! <laughs> what a weird. I didn't know this, so sorry. This mm. is getting a little bit off topic, mm. but uh, Emily, it's good to be back, <laughs> right? 
Emily told you just don't get this. It's hard same... to do that on Skype because yeah. you are trying to be courteous. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, I can look you in the eye and with my eyes say "fuck you." I'm talking right now, uh, <laughs> Which and you I don't did have to in say this it. scenario. So maybe later, <laughs> definitely a good possibility. So Emily told me that in the books there is no description of Voldemort really in his appearance. In, at least in the way of his nose, that that was a total film decision. I thought that was kind of odd. That mm. sounds about right from when I read those things. I remember thinking Voldemort looked more like a dragon or something. But like I was like a kid, and mm-hmm. you know whatever. But yeah, and he yeah, obviously takes. Oh, I was just gonna say he obviously takes many forms throughout That's the, the right. stories, both the yeah. books and the films. But at the same time, that feels like such a defining feature. That to have that not come from the book feels a little odd. Yeah. yeah. Harry Potter has come to Hogwarts. Oh, boy. Uh, so, Ray, F- Ray Fiennes is great, but that's not his best work. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitively said. <laughs> that's correct. Toussaint, you were going to say something. Um, it makes sense, though, why Voldemort would look like a snake. I mean, it seems like he just devoted himself so, like completely to dark magic that of course he would try to emulate like his patronus in that sort of way and just like yeah but these see the thing about this though is that the spoken like a raven claw bro i like don't even get me started on jk rowling we that's a that's a whole other can of fucking worms she's had a bad year oh she's had a whole oh she's a bad year oh okay don't get me started okay we're gonna yeah we're gonna connect i was gonna say we might as well we might as well no, we haven't. We haven't done much about Harry Potter. Maybe someday we'll we'll do a. We have done literally the shittiest movie in the entire franchise. Yep, not true. Which, yep. I mean, I guess the second one is, but like, you know, at a, at a certain point, like that's for. Uh, I guess. I guess I meant the <laughs> the Hallmark series of it of the Harry Potter and the series. Yeah, yeah. I know what you meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh... anyways, we'll get back to that. Someday down the road, mm-hmm. maybe once we've finished all the other things that we want to do. That'll more. be the first episode Nick's not on. <laughs> Please. <laughs> oh boy. Just kidding. I have opinions on everything. <laughs> we know. <laughs> so top six favorite <laughs> film endings. Uh again, this was kind of my brainchild, so I think if it's alright with everybody, I will go first. Please do. Okay, so um I was super pumped about this and actually uh, the film that ended up being my number five was the reason why uh, I like got reinvigorated about wanting to do this. So I will talk more about that experience when we get to number five. It's already a twist. Is there? Mm-hmm. There's only one film on my list that has like a hard twist. In Same it. here. Okay, that's so funny. Like literally, I. Once I picked it, I was like, okay, this is my, and we'll get to it, obviously, but I was like, this is my definitive twist ending. Mm-hmm. The other five are just endings. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that's funny. Yeah, so we'll, 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 we'll get to that here. Well, uh, my twist bit. is better than your twist, but. Okay, whatever. well, that's How fine. I know that. Anyway, continue. Because Nick, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He has better opinions, so there no, you go. he doesn't. Continue. So, anyways, uh, I really started with about, like, 40 uh titles on my list and then I wielded it down to six. Damn. And every single uh every single film on my list has been at a different spot on the list in the last couple of weeks. I've moved it around a lot. Um but I'm happy where it's at now. So number six uh on my top six favorite film endings 
is 2006's Casino Royale, mm-hmm. uh, oh. the first Daniel Craig James Bond film. Oh, that is a fucking banger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I've watched this film probably like two or three times in the last year. Mm-hmm. And the more I've watched this, the more I've liked it. Uh, and it's like creeping up to close to like Skyfall territory for Ooh. me. That's how much I've enjoyed it. Okay. I would put them about at par with each other for sure. Um, I think the action in this film is for sure the best of the series, mm. which is unfortunate because it's the first of what will eventually be five. So you would think that it would have only gotten better as time went on, but it seems like they've regressed a bit. Um, and the action throughout the entirety of the film is great. There's numerous fantastic action sequences throughout the film. And the storyline of it is actually pretty good, especially everything involving Daniel Craig's Bond and also everything with uh, Vesper, uh, his love interest throughout the film. And also Mads Mikkelsen, who plays a very bond for something. Yeah. yeah, he plays a very boilerplate bond villain that was before i think i really like fell in love with his work before i mean he wasn't really popular then yeah like before hannibal yeah yeah and um dr strange let's not forget about that yeah dr strange and then like death stranding and stuff like that so uh the ending of this film though is fabulous as they are in um i don't have the i don't remember which exactly part of it but they're in they're in part of italy i believe because there, there's 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 river there's water everywhere and people on boats um, that you know getting to their residence is what <laughs> it's just like there's water Italy in Italy yeah. water I mean no, that is an actual home. it's just anyway yeah it anyway very vague yeah I didn't I but didn't, I believe you are correct yes I didn't do the research on exactly where they were at and what location but um, there is lots of water around the buildings and the residences and shops and all that. Uh, and that leads us to a fantastic finale uh, that involves uh, a building uh, slowly sinking uh, as uh, Vesper Lind has been kidnapped as she turned on Bond. But really, she did it to protect Bond, but we don't know that until the very end. Um, and then she also basically decides to commit suicide um, by locking herself in an elevator shaft uh, and Bond tries to get her out before she drowns, and he's not able to. And there's just a lot of things happening in the finale. And it looks really good, too, because, it's again, it's a fucking building sinking. Yeah. Uh, and you're watching it just sort of, like, slowly, like, burst as it's falling into the water. And you have people, you know, spectators almost around watching everything that's happening. And the entire storyline that happens between Bond and Vesper which gets brought back up sort of in the last Bond film, Spectre. Um, but uh, Casino Royale is a really good movie and has a fantastic ending. Also, the first action sequence in that film is so good um, between the chase between Bond and the uh, guy he finds at the random cockfight that he's <laughs> attending. Um, so great action throughout. But a, Gotta have a, hobbies. Yeah, well, you know. Uh, it, it was definitely a character detail. They're like, look, poor people like gambling on cockfighting. Uh, See? Poor people. Oh. Surely we'll find some terrorists here. It's like, oh and they God. did. Oh boy. oh, boy. The era of the Patriot Act. Oh, my God. That's Yeah, that's a good way of, like, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yep. So, anyways, Casino Royale is uh, number six for me. And if uh, you haven't seen it, it's a, it's a fantastic film and an, an even better ending. Yeah. Uh, can I go next? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so I've got egg on my face uh, because 
when you said, yeah, there are no Christopher Nolan films on my list, I was like, oh, well. That was not an egg on your face. Yeah, I mean, uh, number six. Own it. My number six uh, is the ending to The Dark Knight. Okay. 2008's The Dark Knight because I just – I feel like that to me sort of epitomized – like when I saw that in theaters for the first time, I feel like that moment sort of epitomized what the appeal of that character was. And I know that there are a lot of other depths to that character. Um, Of Batman? Of Batman. Um, But, you know, watching that ending for the first time, it reminded me of being a kid and watching Mask of the Phantasm – uh, for the first time and watching him being chased down by those cops. I know that that is a problematic sequence here because we like to make fun of the car that's on top of the fucking, like, building. But I still think that is an excellent, like, You know, sequence. that actually happens in Batman Begins, too. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say something, I'm like... <laughs> when we were watching it. Earlier. Oh, my God. Uh, well, because he just starts driving on top of it, so it's actually kind of... But there they the officially establish it with a parking garage. I swear... In the establishing shot in Phantasm, they never once said that that was a parking garage. I feel like that is a... The, He's also on, like, the fifth floor where Phantasm's, like, I the 30th. Know. You, you so, know what? Anyway. Here's what I'll say about that. As, as an aside, that that Phantasm is able to have such a glaring um, break with its own logic and still manage to be, in my opinion, one of still one of the best Batman films of all time. Like I will, I will put that out there. I will say that. What like, about Suicide Squad? Don't talk. Anyway, <laughs> uh, just not even please. Just don't talk. Um, is 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 no small feat. Is no small feat whatsoever. But anyway, back to Dark Knight. Yeah, well, that got was big feet. That was a great. That was a great ending. What what specifically about it did did you really the sort really of the sort of speech you? from. Uh, uh, Commissioner Gordon, mm. when he's telling his son like why he why he has to why he has to go away, and what is it exactly that he sees in him of what is necessary, like in a hero, um, just like sometimes you just you have to be the bad guy so that somebody else can be lifted up because they he's he's the hero that we deserve, but he's not the hero that we I mean need right that now. that ending image of him driving, driving. the motorcycle up the ramp mm-hmm. off of. Um, Lower Wacker yeah. in Chicago going towards the light. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty great. It is. It's a fucking great, like, smash cut to, like, the actual title. Like, it's just, I I really fuck with that ending. Yeah. yeah. As and a Chicagoan, I really fuck with that ending, too. Batman Begins also ends with a smash cut, too. It does after uh, he's yeah. flying. Because I wasn't expecting rooftop. that for some. I mean, I knew it was, like, when it ended, but, yeah. like, it's a really abrupt uh, edit, which yeah. is yeah. very interesting. It's, yeah. um, you know. It was Christopher Nolan at probably his peak of what he's able to do, just yeah. because he was... I should not know him, but A, I like the Batman movies, I like Interstellar, I like I love Memento, so I mostly just shit on him because uh, recently he's kind of on my shit list. Prestige was good. Prestige is very good. I, is clearly, good, I like a lot of his movies. That was an ending that was sort of a contender. I, that's what I thought you were going to say when was, you said... That was a contender, Yeah, uh, and I love that film. I haven't, I haven't returned to that film in ages... Um, but I definitely want to because it's a damn good film. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a great movie. Yeah. yeah. But that's my uh, my number six, uh, Dark Knight. Beautiful. Nick, uh, now you had mentioned uh, previously that uh, you and Dan Brooks uh, have started a new podcast. But also, uh, he's still still paying attention to our podcast. He and really is. Even though he wasn't able to be here tonight, 
uh, or we didn't invite him. <laughs> we probably should make that <laughs> distinction because if you had just left it at that, yeah. I feel like I would have got a phone call and be like, "What?" No, but it, yeah. And anyways, it's you know, it wasn't really sad. social distancing. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're trying to sure. do here. Anyways, he has a top six list, so you're he gonna does. you're gonna read his and also yours when you uh, it's your turn. Correct. So, it, so I'll start with his. And what's interesting about this, just reading it at a glance, is uh, his six, five, and four are movies I have not seen. Okay. So I'm probably just going to read his blurb. But when we get down to three, two, one, I can probably add a sentence or two okay. to it because I have seen those movies. So starting with Dan Jeremy Brooks, number six, uh, it is the film El Norte from 1983. And he said, it's a film that spends its last few minutes lulling you into that queasy feeling of settling for a life you didn't particularly want, mm. only to cut to a final shot, a reminder from much earlier that is so horrific that it hits like a fucking atom bomb. Wow. So, uh, El Norte is a movie I actually owned, <laughs> but I have not watched yet. I've been meaning to, so obviously just reading that uh, has made and it is that a is that a foreign film? Or? It is. Okay. It is, uh, I forget. Get the person, but I'm going to tell you right now who directed it, thanks to the wonders of the internet. Uh, yeah, directed by Gregory Nava. Um, I think it was famously... Nope, that's a different movie. I'm not going to say that. But I, I, have, I do know this movie. I'm not just being racist. Uh, <laughs> Lord, I was please. thinking of Elser. Uh, well, come on, that's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... Um, but uh, no, but I have been meaning to watch El Norte as well. So, uh, all right, your number, my six. number six. Yes, please. Something I can actually speak to. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I think, the only time I've ever cheated in a top six list. Okay, oh. so you're gonna let me have this, right? Yes. Because my number six is what I call Lars von Trier ends his movie <laughs> okay. because pretty much. Once I remembered one of his endings, I then was like, oh, and then there's, uh, oh, and because for me, the, and this is going to sound awful, but the attempted rape at the end of Nymphomaniac, the Jack in hell in the house that Jack built, yeah, falling into the literal inferno uh, with uh, the, um, the, the Christian angelic bells ringing out at the end of uh, Breaking the Waves to the entire final soliloquy, which I was in a top six uh, monologue, or not monologue, conversations, mm-hmm. which is the final scene of Dogville. Like, I think, say what you want about Lars von Trier, but he, whether you hate his point or love his point. He certainly knows how to end a movie in a way that you will remember. Yes. More so than the build-up, he will always put a period on his sentences, uh, so to speak. The house that Jack built. <laughs> I, have never, I have never seen Alex laugh Harder in like like horror and, and both delight at his line of like, oh, don't worry, I'm a gentleman. Yeah, no, he he killed the children first because he's a gentleman. Man, yeah, that there's, was there's a lot of sense. that in that movie. That's like oh, Polly's yeah. robot in 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 Rocky for hey, me. Hey, R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, because he's not surviving the Sylvester Stallone cut that he did during quarantine. That was the most joy that I ever I ever got out of out of 
one of the movies that we've watched Out together at this, at this studio. Hello, Polly. <laughs> I was just... I don't even get it. Why would you cut it out? Because it's actually a personal connection, too, because it was a robot that was designed to work with autistic children, which Stallone literally knew about because of his own son who has autism. So it's like, how can you be so fucking unsentimental that no matter how cheesy it is, you would somehow think that it has no merit in your propaganda against Russia movie? No, oh, man, I just I want money. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I have a feeling that it's probably something to the tune of, yeah, you know, Steven Seagal told me one time that he didn't like the robot scene, so I'm taking it out because you know what? He's a genius. Yeah. So, so anyway, so, so, um, my, my, my cheat. Yeah. I I appreciate that. I'll say it was a tie. Okay. Between specifically his two most recent ones of Nymphomaniac and The House that Jack Built. But when I kept looking back, I felt like his other endings were just as great. But Nymphomaniac is probably the ultimate one where um, I can understand that someone would hate that completely because, in a lot of ways, it's not like there are like breadcrumbs to that ending. But psychologically speaking, I completely understand what the argument Von Trier is making, even if his characters are somewhat katawing to it. So I can understand why anyone would not like it, but for Stellan Skarsgård, after this kind of five-hour trek to, you know, nurse Joe back to health and go through... He's got that great line at the end. But you fucked thousands of men. Yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is male entitlement, and the fact that it doesn't come until the very end where he believes he's quote-unquote done the work. Uh, and then that's the I've only... I've listened to her speak. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And the fact that that's like what we're left with, I, I think it's a very pointed critique. Well, the uh, other thing is, That's too, meant to be uncomfortable. And uh, I know we've chatted about this before, but it's assumed that she shoots him. And uh, that oh, yeah, is almost, right. almost certainly what happens. Because you have the audio of it over but the you, black screen. Yeah, you only have the audio of it, so you do not know exactly what transpired. Right. So it's it leaves just just the smallest amount of doubt uh, to think that it went the other way. So yeah. it's, it's it's a good ending. I, it I, is. If I had to pick out of the two of those, I would probably still pick the house that Jack built, only because so great. it is fantastic and just the way it plays out almost perfectly – um, to that situation that you would think that it would be in this the the image of him falling yeah. and then the smash cut to uh, uh, hit the road jack uh, mm. for the credits. I was going to say the music great. drop and everything mm. makes that amazing. So uh, I I couldn't just not settle on one. And so That's I, great. Ultimately, my my thesis with my number six is I feel like he's my favorite director of endings. Okay. Mm. So. Yeah. Good stuff. So moving on to number five. Uh, uh, this film is, uh, is what led me to do this. And I will say, um, I watched this, uh, with a coworker of mine who came over and hung out just kind of randomly. Uh, I think I mentioned it at the end of when we, we were chatting me and Nick and I think Anna after the last episode, but I don't think it was on the episode. Oh, I think I know what this is. Oh yeah. So anyways, um, this was, this was, uh, earlier this year. It was during the peak of the um, George Floyd Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. protests. Yeah. And my friend had never previously seen Django Unchained. So he came over to hang out and just chill because yeah. nobody had really right. done that. Right, so right. he just wanted to hang out with right. someone else and yeah. whatever. And I was fine with it. It was just one person. So yeah. we cooked up some stuff on the grill and chatted for a couple hours and then watched Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. And he's not a big movie guy, and he's just like, wow, this is, 
like this is a good movie but this is even more i'm like yeah that's why i picked it yeah um anyways the ending of Django unchained is so satisfying in quite a few ways it's like almost looney tunes level of catharsis yeah so we we have uh the silly scene play out mm. uh, i think it's a very silly scene yeah uh with quentin tarantino and the other two guys who are the people who are taking him away to the little Clint Dickey mining company. Yes, and Tarantino has that terrible Australian accent. Like a dynamite for you guys. I just he just has like, and he wrote it specifically for him to say. But that one time when he walks up to him, he's like, "Hey, Blackie, I, I don't, why, why are you? Why do- would you do that? Why are you doing this?" Uh, he knows why. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway. It, really yeah, quick, yeah, it's yeah. weird that he made his career off of saying the N word, and then in Django Unchained, he says, "Like, not that that like." Well, he does. A, he doesn't want to say the N word. True, but it's like, but it's not like there's a hierarchy of like what is racially right, whatever. But I, you know, just as far as culturally sensitive, right. that is not like at like a hundred percent as the N word is. And yet he says that left and right in Pulp Fiction or whatever. So anyway, I just find he that put hilarious. he put it before a, a, a what is it a, a, a test audience, and he's like, maybe you want to maybe you want to dial that back I, a little bit, Quentin. It's sort of getting it's sort of getting kind of weird now. I, yeah, I was gonna say, it's I can't getting tell kind of weird now. I can't tell if it's growth or if it's because this is literally a movie about black reparations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, earlier in the film, and I, this is not him. But but there is one point where Calvin Candy is commenting on um, Dr. King Schultz having an eye for the uh, for uh, Django's wife. He says, "Oh, I'm gonna you gotta catch yourself a little bit of n-word love," and oh, you just in the in the background hear his lawyer go, "Mm-mm." <laughs> just, <laughs> just oh so, my god! Anyways, so getting to the finale of this film, um, we have the end of Calvin Candy's funeral when. The whole crew, including the sister that he's definitely banning, uh, Samuel L. Jackson is, has returned, and also uh, Walton Goggins' character of Billy Crass uh, has returned, and Django is in Calvin Candy's clothes at the top of the stairs in an elevated position after saving his wife for the second time uh, in the last two days. And uh, pretty much it's... A very fan servicey finale mm-hmm. of just saying, "Here, we're going to have a lot of shooting, and uh, the hero's going to just pretty much mow down all of the villains. We're going to have explosions, and he's not going to look at them at first. He's going to look at it for a little bit, and then he'll look back." Well, it, it's it's so heavy handed, but at the same time, there is really something about the finale of that film mm-hmm. of um, Stephen, who is uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, as he is the uh, the house. House, uh, the head house. Yes. The house, the hell's house, house Negro. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he is, you know, gets shot in the knees and is left there pretty much to, to die. Damn and then he you, sees. Django. Yeah. He's, he's, he, he, he uh, literally utters the word. And again, it's very heavy handed, but yeah. it's, you know, you can't destroy Candyland. We've been here. We're going to be here. He's just walking off. And then the whole house explodes. Yeah. Um, it's so great yeah. because. The reality is, is say what you want about cancel culture. Like you got to blow some of that shit up because you need to stop 
you need to stop worrying about that. Yeah. Like that happened and it's a scar. It's a deep scar on America's <laughs> past. But like we need to move past that at some point. I mean, it's literally blowing up a quote unquote historical monument oh, because yeah. a lot of people think of plantation houses as such a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but retroactively, instead of waiting uh, until the modern era to do so, so it's uh, it's it's not just timely because of obviously you know racial uh, conflict or anything, but it's kind of amazing what he did, especially considering what the impetus for the entire final sequence is that Dr. Schultz basically realizes what a lot of white people in this country have to realize now, which is that. Until you're ready to take a bullet for your black brothers and sisters, silences complicity. Yeah, you you know, and I'm not saying that means we need to go on a suicide run. No, no. But it is that kind of level of activism that is the only way we are actually going to beat the very thing that a lot of us say that we are against. The conversation between him and and Candy in the in the study. I actually returned to that recently because it was Alexander Dumas's birthday a couple of like weeks ago, <laughs> and I just posted that that um, that clip underneath the uh, the Google Doodle that they did for that, and I'm just like, Alexander Dumas was black, and I love the the Google Doodle itself because it shows him he's black, and I and that yeah that meant a lot. So yeah, well, and that goes back to the yeah, yeah we don't need to get into it. Yeah. I was just gonna say the 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 thought of. Uh, liberals at least people are paying the liberals that everybody from the right is stupid he, like, there's but no such thing as fact checking can, candy is uh no but 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 he talks down to people throughout the and in to the delight of me right. because i love watching it but uh like this the the words that king schultz uses throughout right. the film he's very much talking to people like you won't understand what i'm saying yeah speak english well it is a second language yeah he (laughs) um yeah yeah, like the whole character of candy is just he's this uh he's a francophile but at the same time he is a doesn't speak french he's a friend he's he's an illiterate francophile dilettante in that he does he has an appreciation for french culture and art but he does not have any sort of deeper um, engagement with those actual texts, other than sort of the sur- he, he, he the, thinks he the, thinks they're cool. The surface and the affect of what they they confer status upon him. The other thing about Calvin Candy's character in that film is that it is playing up the idea of this was learned from the generation before me, mm-hmm. so you can't really blame me. It's uh, bullshit. Yeah, it's but bullshit. That, but yeah. that has been that. That's been an argument for racism in this country right. since the end of slavery. Yeah. So it's like grandma's good china. You want me to throw out grandma's good china? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> Anyways, the ending of Django Unchained is quite satisfying, and even if it is um very cartoonish at points, especially when um Candy's sister goes flying into the other room when she gets shot by Django, um, or Walton Goggins flailing around on the floor uh, like a dying fish. Uh, it's a very well done film and a very um, exciting finale, mm-hmm. especially the explosion uh, of the plantation, which is, as per many Quentin Tarantino films, very over the top and uh, satisfying. Yeah. So, Django Unchained, number five on my list. 
So my number five, um, I have a lot of attachment to uh, memories of encountering some of these these endings that I've I've had before, and this uh, this ending is from one of the first times that Nick and I went to go see a double feature together, and it still stands out as not only one of my favorite films, but one of my favorite film going experiences because it was sort of the one of the impetuses of like our. Our friendship, and uh, I really... I, I think I know what this is. Uh, it is uh, 2013's Before Midnight. Yep. yep. Before I mid- uh, Before I even... It is a good choice. Yeah, before I even... Um, I even encountered the Before trilogy, this was just me sort of like coming into it, like totally blind, and I felt like I already knew these characters. I felt... And, and that was something that's very... That, which sticks out to me even I have not watched the film since I saw it in theaters and it still resonates in my mind so deeply because I know these characters and and, and it's, it's so natural how the camera affords me a, a a means by which to follow them through a day in their life like like all the previous films in this but I feel like it's just so <clears throat> mature it's such a it's a depiction of, of love that I don't normally get to see which is love after happily ever after when it's not these two people that are necessarily hateful towards one another or or cartoonish in that sort of sense but rather they are growing with each other and it hits a point where it feels like maybe they want to stop but the time machine speech between jesse and celine was just so it's it's like magic it really it really does bring you back to like why did these two people fall in love with one another? Why are these two fiercely intelligent, passionate, independent personalities eventually coalesce with one another? And they're just like, you know, if you're looking for it, this is it. What more could you want if not this? And I'm just like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's magic every single time I think of it. What's great about that ending is that when that first came out, I, I was flabbergasted that after I saw it and loved it, that I had taken the entire ending to be hopeful and, yeah. and beautiful and romantic. Yeah. And I spoke to a lot of people. A lot of some. A lot of people agreed with me, but I spoke to another lot of people who well, were well, like, they're gonna, they're gonna... "Yeah, like, well, technically speaking, they're ignoring the problem." And I, you know what? The more I thought about that, the more I could understand how maybe there is some ambiguity mm-hmm. into that kind of, you know ellipses so to speak mm-hmm. um but it never wavered from what i thought about what was happening and i think that's ultimately what true love is which half, is something we don't understand because a, we're not the two people right half a story is what is told and the other half of the story is where you decide to end it what's crazy too is that not only did you agree to go see it uh, because you hadn't seen the other two, so yeah. I was slightly surprised that you were like, sure. But then that you loved it so much because I was like kind of worried because I was like, I'm super excited to go see this because right, right, this right. is like a culmination of whatever. Right, right, right. And then I feel like you had like, uh, which I've now come to find is like the Tucson way, yeah. <laughs> but you had like a bigger reaction than I did when we were leaving the theater because yeah. you like slammed your popcorn oh, yeah. into the trash can. I was like, that was fucking amazing it was, it was an uh, incredible film yeah i love I, that film so much i love that ending yeah one of my favorite films so that's yeah, beautiful 2013's uh before midnight all right dan jeremy brooks number five is from the movie places in the heart 
from 1984, mm. uh, a movie I have never seen. I know it stars Sally Field and Ed Harris, but I've actually mm. never watched it. So, uh, it's, he said, still one of the greatest and most moving final minutes in the film. So, mm. watch that if you haven't watched it already. My number five is... Got to switch between notes here. Okay. Crisscross! Uh, <laughs> my number five comes uh, courtesy uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment, starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Okay. Uh, this is the ultimate romantic comedy. I mean, nothing beats it for me. It's just in that pure genre. And a lot of it, I mean, the entire film is brilliant, but a lot of it comes down to there's really no better final line in a movie after uh, these two people who were kind of mismatched at the places uh, they were in their life and professional career. Uh, Jack Lemon plays CeCe Baxter, who is this kind of nebbish and kind of pathetic, uh, not in a pejorative, but just meek-minded and whatnot, uh, business executive who rents out his apartment to the higher CEOs and the higher executives uh, because it becomes a place where they can have their affairs from their spouses because he's just a lonely bachelor who doesn't actually use his apartment other than mm. just sleeping but he's so uh, withdrawn inside himself that he thinks that's a better use and he'll go sleep on a park bench while a boss is you know having sex with somebody whatever and he finds out that the boss he pretty much hates because he's not a good guy is actually having an affair with the elevator girl played by Shirley MacLaine that he likes uh, from afar and they're in this kind of will they won't they trapping because she's hung up on a guy who's not respecting her and he's you know the guy who does but what's great is they don't get together because she sees oh like you were the nice guy all along or anything like that but because they actually both reached a point of despair at almost the same time you know what i mean it was like it truly is kind of like luck and romance at the same time so by the time that they do uh find themselves finally in each other's presence and ready for an actual romance that's when the film's gonna end and she walks into uh his apartment they sit down on the couch and this is a movie that features a suicide attempt you know i mean it's not like this is a fluffy you know whatever and the final moments is that cc baxter played wonderfully by jack lemon is you know he's doing his kind of stick where he talks too much or whatever and she pulls out the deck of cards that they were going to play or whatever, and he keeps talking, whatever, and finally she just says, shut up and deal. And then the movie just cuts to the credits, and that is like classic Hollywood cinema uh, for me in in a nutshell. It's just a perfect distillation of when star power really had something to it, and when um, romantic comedies were actually a viable and... I think valuable. I mean, I still think they are, but I don't think anyone's really made a dent in that genre in a long time. Maybe since like the eighties with like Nora Ephron and whatnot. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like <laughs> there's some romantic comedies from the early to mid nineties where they, they, they like, had a boon, but I don't, I don't know. Like, like, was... like a lot of people go back to when Harry met Sally is that as like a really yeah. good romantic comedy, but that's from, 
late 80s, early 90s? That was from 80s, I thought. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, but that's exactly what I was thinking of, like, the last breath <laughs> of, like, uh, an orgasm. But um, <laughs> The last breath of an orgasm. Yeah, you know. Like, I'll uh, have what uh, she's having. Uh, oh, um, you mean the uh, the deaf whimper of, no, yeah. the deaf rattle of a La Petite that's, Mort. That's, yes, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I'm not saying we've never had a good romantic comedy, because um, since then, because technically I know we've done, um, uh, oh, God, who did uh, Enough Said and a few other movies. Uh, she just did... The movie that was on Netflix, which I actually never saw, but had Ben Mendelsohn in it. But she's been doing good movies recently. I got, I got this. Um, this is gonna kill me because I should know it. Julia Louis Dreyfus? No, but uh, who directed it? Oh, Nick, Nicole Hollow Hollowseen. What? Hollowseen? No. Really? It's Hollow. Senior Hello Scene? Yeah, okay. Well. Okay. Her her name is is, is I was close. Is that referring to a geological age of the no. Holocene? No, I mean there there's an F in here, there's an R According like to Bonavere, yes. <laughs> her her spelling of her last name is kind of difficult because it's H O L O H O L O F C E N E R. Like there's a lot happening there. Nicole Hall Center, I think. Oh is. that that, that yeah, sounds that okay. sounds more like it. That's what I was trying to say. I'm an idiot, but she's been doing great work in the genre, and there are still people who are doing great work. We just haven't. I feel like it's been such uh, dismissed as a genre, as of late, that it's hard for a lot of people to really carve a mark in it. But the apartment, the final scene, and that clothing line, shut up and deal, is one of the most achingly romantic slash melancholy uh, sign offs to a movie uh, ever made. So uh, for me, it's Billy Wilder's Apartment at number five. Cool. Moving on to our number four uh, top six film endings. My number four uh, is the second entry in the Saw series. So Saw 2. This is the that is one... a good ending. Yeah, this is... <laughs> Tucson just resigned. That is a good ending. Uh, this is the one twist I put on my list. Ha-ha. Uh, and I So just... weird because I didn't see that coming. Actually? Yeah, like actually. Okay. I mean, not because I don't like it, obviously. Somebody like, play the theme song right like, now. I consider myself to be the saw nut uh, of this little podcast, but I never I never once thought about it. So, remember anyway, we, remember I'm we glad all you watched the up. films back-to-back back together, and I fell asleep yeah. during that one movie, that one... That, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, if it was anywhere in the middle, you're fine. Yeah, re- really, and I, I know Nick loves the third one, really it's only the first two that are even worth anything. Third one's all right. The first three. That's what I just. First, I mean, just at say. least give me this. Jigsaw is alive for the first three. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there was a noticeable drop after Dead Jigsaw. I literally <laughs> just remembered that the Book of Jigsaw was supposed to come out this year. Don't book remind me. Oh. I'm sad. Is that what it was going to be called? No, no. Spiral it's from fine. the Book of Saw. Oh, okay. yeah. No, surprised that hasn't dropped. I'm yet. actually interested in seeing that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm very mad at Shudder because they just tweeted out today a sneak peek at a new film coming to whatever Shudder called Spiral, and it had a little spiral emoticon. I clicked Bitch. on it, and they have picked up other things before, and it was not the Click same movie. And actually, it looks like a good movie, but I was like, fuck you. <laughs> so the ending of Saw 2 always blew my mind just because of how simple and yet wonderful it was in the way that it finished 
The ending of the first film is also quite good, um, but it's even more simple, uh, and it's more like, oh, that's obvious. Uh, but the ending of the second film, with the kid being locked in the safe behind them in the uh, security room for the entirety of the film, um, to go along, I think really what makes that so good is the fact that the film is non-linear and that it is shot not out of sequence, but there's a different timeline happening with the actual house yep. and the actual... The footage on the CRT... Yeah. Uh whatever tv that he's watching right yeah so you have that going on so that's a game in and of itself and then you have the actual game that happened you know whenever it was days before or a day before whenever and then you have the the realization that he's still in the room but at this time donnie Wahlberg has went back with uh jigsaw to the house and is now trapped oh um, donnie i love the part where he like hits him when he's in the car he's like tell me where they are now yeah that's a very uh that that's a very christopher nolan batman type thing tell me now just slams he's like yes hitting a cancer victim is gonna gonna just give him give it up no yeah. problem yeah <laughs> he's got his kid man yeah, I don't know. That cancer victim created some pretty gnarly death traps inside of his uh, headquarters. He? Um, yeah. Or was it Costas Mandalore? I'm pretty sure he was. I'm pretty sure he was at the the drawing board coming up with how can I destroy this this uh, cop's knees and then encase them inside of a, an electrified fence. He can be at a dra- at the drawing board, but he doesn't have to be the one who actually physically did oh, it. Oh fuck this argument! Oh, also, come on now, fuck he's this not argument. Legally responsible for murder. They were on my property. No. They were I'm, on my property. Because, you know, the, it's a game. And if they're the ones who are technically murdering themselves. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> Saw 2 is pretty good. And I enjoy it. And the ending of Saw 2, honestly, every time I watch it, even though I know it's coming, I'm just like, damn, that's good. Well, I mean, the whole movie is also pointing out the ending the entire time. Mm-hmm. Not in a like obvious way, just in like when he keeps saying, oh, he's in a safe place, and oh, all you gotta mm-hmm. do is stay in this room. You know what I mean? And that literally ends up becoming true. And, and I never thought about it the first time I watched yeah. it, and then just have my mind blown, just as probably everybody else did, in the actual film... Yeah. Um, it, it worked out really well. So I, I will say I'm with you in the sense that that's probably my favorite twist in the entire series because of the fact that, A, nostalgia-wise, that was the first Saw movie I had watched. Okay. Mm. So, like, I watched Same. that, had no idea, obviously, that was coming. So even when I watched the first one, which I love, and I love the ending of that, mm-hmm. I knew it was coming. Uh, so that was the first time I got to be blown away. And, and, and that was a series trait, still is. Um, but at the same time... Um, it kind of has become like the M. Night Shyamalan yeah, twist. Like where right. it's like, mm-hmm. We're all expecting it. When's Hello Zep going to come on? Oh, there we go again. But man, that's a fucking banger. Yeah. It is a fucking banger. It's a great... Especially in that film it was before we had the next six. Yep. It's this generation's uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Just just run that car till the wheels fall off and then put on some more spy rules. Um, Hello Zep. Yep. All right. Moving on to Tucson. Um... So, my number four is the ending of Andrew Dominic's 2007, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward, mm. Robert Ford. Um, I feel like I have to confess something about this ending. Did you Uh-oh. not know he was going to murder him? No. 
I have to confess something. It's this, right there in the title. This is one of my favorite uh, film endings. I have never seen the entire film. Oh, my God. You know what? I was going to joke that that's what you were going to say, but I thought that that was like too Tucson. You know what? Here's the thing. I When I was crunching the numbers. I don't feel bad about cheating now. When I was crunching the numbers of like what endings I wanted to put on this list, I thought of that ending, and I almost convinced myself to sit down and watch it. However, in my defense... It's such a boring movie no, that I didn't want to watch no. it. No, in my defense... I mean, I love that movie, but that's what it's, it sounds it's like. Two and a, it's two and a half hours, and it's very hard to get my girlfriend to sit but down and watch But you gave yourself a an extra week to watch a when film. you didn't show up I've for I've been with my girlfriend watching Big Brother! Oh my god, I hope Tyler goes all the way, by the way. What, uh, wait, the, the surfer guy? I love Tyler. He's not doing as good in this season, but his original season, he was awesome. You know who I anyway. hate? Memphis. Memphis. Oh, is he's a, the worst. Memphis is a fucking he's so racist. Bad. Do you want to start a Big Brother podcast? No. Uh, but never mind. Yeah. What do you think I'm about so the... Glad, I'm so glad Tucson just snuffed that out right away. Anyway. Um, because you're lost. I, I will say, Andrew Dominic has a couple good endings. That, because that one's good, but... That ending is, is five mm. minutes. K- Killing Them Softly's ending with Brad Pitt's walk-off. Fucking pay me my money. Yeah, yeah. Is, is pretty great. The ending <laughs> is five minutes, and I've seen it before, like, where it's where it's uh, basically cut off, and it shows, you know, Robert Ford, like, talking to his, like, sweetheart. It's like, well, why did you do it? I feel like the ending is so strong that all you need is the title, and those five minutes, I'm, I'm no. Let me just let me say why I why this actually resonates with me. Okay, I'm allowed to laugh. Let me like let me talk about why. I don't the, know the, anything about the rest of the film. Why that ending end, is really why good. that ending resonates with me? <laughs> okay. because it's obvious that that Jesse set him up to kill him, and that the whole reason is that like Jesse James is this famous outlaw, and he would rather like he would rather like burn out than fade away. And the whole elegic sort of like construction of this with just like the narrator talking about like what his life was like after he killed him and how he regretted killing his friend. I feel like Jesse set him up. He set his friend up to fucking kill him so that he could go on to live on forever. And like the the narrator's talking about like this guy came down from the mountains like he had no great plans. Um, he ended up just like killing you – know, like uh, – after he had done the deed, all these people signed these signatures in order to let him out. And, and this year, he was let out. So we already know that the guy is going to kill like Robert Ford, and he's going to get out of out, out of uh, jail eventually for that. And then like Robert Ford is like, no one is going to name anybody and name their kids after him. Nobody's going to pay five cents to be able to go to see the rooms that he lived in or anything like that. And he's going to turn around and says like, and Maybelline will scream. But all he will have, well, like all you could see, is like his face struggling to 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 find the words before like it actually happened. And I thought that that was fucking, that was fucking powerful. It makes me want to watch the film. It makes me feel bad that I haven't seen the film up to this point. But it's still an ending that sticks out in my mind, where it's just like, fuck, that's good. Yeah, I, I mean, I am no contest with the actual ending or the movie itself which i have watched you have a contest with the fact that i haven't seen the film yet and i feel bad about <laughs> that but i but i be a brick but, but I, um but i will say my ultimate just as 
just as a fun fact, uh, I will say my favorite Jesse James movie mm. is I Shot Jesse James by Sam Fuller back in the 40s. It's, Assassination of Jesse James is basically a remake of that, and I don't mean that in that like glib way of, like, well, obviously they're about the same story. Yeah. I mean, like, literally... They're doing almost the same beat, beat, for beat. by beat, you know, yeah. whatever, except for Andrew Dominic adds a whole poetic element mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Roger Deakins at the helm. Uh, that was Roger Deakins? Yeah, that makes oh, sense. Yeah. Fuck yeah. So anyway, um, but no, I'm always fascinated by that story in general, and that adaptation is no different. Have we done an episode on that film yet? Nope. On what film? On the assassination of Jesse. Well, clearly Jones. not, because you haven't seen it. Well, sometimes I miss a couple of. of <laughs> that is true. I miss a couple of episodes. But no, we have not. I feel like we should put that on the docket for the well, future. We do that. I would like that. All right. All right. I'll write it down. <laughs> Nicholas. Yes. Uh, number four on Dan Jeremy Brooks's list is The Tenant, which is a uh, Roman Polanski film. That movie just came out. Oh, boy. Uh, no, it did not. It is a Roman Polanski film. <laughs> <laughs> From 1976. I've heard of that one. I'm just taking that literally. Hmm. Uh, Okay. Uh, And he says, and this has been actually one of Polanski's films from the 70s that I have been meaning to watch. He says, one of the most frightening endings I've ever seen, and also one of the most depressing. We realize we're witnessing a soul in the midst of a tortuous circle that will never end. It actually makes the endings to Polanski's Repulsion, Chinatown, and Rosemary's Baby feel vaguely happy by comparison. So some pretty great uh, nihilism on uh, Polanski's part, and I have been meaning to mean that, uh, meaning to watch that. I know it's kind of part of what most people consider to be his uh, apartment trilogy, which is uh, the tenant, Rosemary's baby, and something else where basically people move into an apartment and something happens. Whether it's it seems Rose- right up your alley, man. Oh yeah. So that was his number four. My number four ha, 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 is my twist ending. Mm. And for me, I hate to use this argument, but for me, this is like twist ending should have stopped after this one. Because for me, this is like not the granddaddy of them in the sense that it was the first, but like... Doesn't how, need to be. You no, know, but it's like, how can you do it better? And it is the original Planet of the Apes. Mm. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. it's the Rod Serling pen script. and Oh, my God. Besides the fact that I actually love that movie. Uh, he went hard in the paint on that one. Holy oh, shit. Yeah. A man known for, for making, like, absolute banger endings. is like, mm. yeah, I can, I can write this script. It is literally, and this is actually hard for me to say, but I like it, the ending, the twist ending, more than I like any... Twilight Zone twist ending, which are f- literally filled with amazing twist that endings. That is a bold <laughs> statement. And, well, you know what? Uh, part of the reason why I love it is the fact that um, one of the the foundations of that ending, you know, Charlton Heston uh, literally escapes from uh, captivity and he's on the beach or whatever. You got to remember when you rewatch that movie, if people you, had you, never seen that before. People had never seen that before, and also the fact that the first. 40 to minutes to about an hour, uh, Charlton Heston doesn't really speak. I mean, he has a few lines of dialogue, but it's mostly like a silent film for about a half hour. Then when he's captured by the apes, uh, he's paralyzed with the drug that makes him unable to speak while only the apes get to speak, right? And he slowly gets his voice back, whatever. So when we get to that ending and we see him realize on the beach that, you know, the Statue of Liberty being there, that being the ultimate ending, that mm-hmm. he was actually on Earth and yeah. he had went through a time vortex, he didn't land on another planet. 
and he screamed, you know, damn you, damn you, damn it all to hell, you know, you let it happen, whatever. Um, like, that is actually the first time we see this emotion from Charlton Heston in the entire movie after he was literally uh, uh, kind of repressing it at first and then literally unable to have it uh, at second. And now this is the ultimate almost betrayal of the human race to him. You know, like he was doing something so majestic. He was doing space travel. He was going to see what lies beyond in, in a very empathetic approach. And he's paid the ultimate price because now he's lost out on actually basically ending that journey that all the other humans got to do. And, and it obviously it's so nihilistic. It's so grim. It's so everything, but he wanted what, to find the final frontier, and guess what? He did. Yeah, and Dan actually reminded me of a great anecdote about that twist ending, which is David Simon, uh, creator of The Wire and many other shows, uh, uh, once told a story about how when he saw that movie for the first time in theaters when it came out, uh, him and his wife left the theater, and and I think this illuminates what's so great about the ending. He says to his wife, like, man, it's so weird that the... Um, that that planet would have a Statue of Liberty on it. And David Simon is a super smart person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that is not in question, whatever. But that ending is so boldly non-expositionary that I could understand why your first reaction is to not actually comprehend the actual gravity of what has uh, been realized by our main character because all you're really shown is an image and a reaction. And, Sooner you know, it later was, it's going to hit you like a freight train though. Yeah. And it was his wife. that was like, well, no honey. Uh, he went back to earth, you know, whatever. And he was like, Oh wow. He was, I'm a dumbass, you know, and, <laughs> hey, and it, we all have our moments, man. Exactly. And I, and I think that ending, uh, ultimately is my favorite twist ending. And it's really hard to beat for me. Uh, just emotionally cathartic and also cerebrally, uh, fucked. <laughs> yes. So, absolutely. Right on. Planet of the apes. Okay. So moving on to number three on our top six film endings. Uh, this is a film that for sure was always going to be on my list, but I didn't know where it was going to fall. Uh, it ended up at number three, and it's uh, not an obvious one, but it's uh, it's one that, that, that gets me every time. Uh, and it is, I will say this, uh, it is the only film that has gotten me to tear up, as I've been a grown man, uh, in a happy way. So in a uh, happy way, and it's almost okay. every single time I watch it. Uh, and it is the ending to the uh, classic Frank Capra film. It's a Wonderful Life. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, just even though there, there's a lot going on in this film, uh, and some can be perceived as negative, mm-hmm. uh, and some can be thought of as extremely uplifting. Uh, there is nothing like the final five or so minutes of this film when George Bailey kind of realizes that he's back in his actual time period and his actual world that he lives in and the fake world that was created by Clarence the Angel has now that little rascal. Yeah, gone away and he's able to be very excited about his life even if it includes going to jail because of the uh, the scheme uh, that was hatched by uh, um, Uncle Billy. Anyways. Classic. Yeah. The film ending uh, with an extremely uplifting moment where all of the townspeople pretty much come and give all of their worldly possessions to George Bailey. Uh, and you have the uh, 
son of his, I believe, playing the piano in the maybe it's the daughter playing the piano in the background uh, when they were practicing earlier, and he yelled at them. And then you have the obvious ending line of every time a bell rings and he because it rings, and he's saying, "Oh, that's right." Um, but but it's the line from his brother that gets me every time when he's just reading uh, the message from Sam Wainwright, who said, "I'm going to send you like way more money than you need just to get you out of this this situation." He said, and then um, his brother Harry then says to my brother George, the richest man in town. Um, there's just something about that and the and something about the humanity of that that always makes me feel like, okay, this is obviously extremely fabricated, but at the same time, like this is what I wish people were like. Yeah. That mm-hmm. when someone was in need, people actually gave what they were able to. Because if you just give what you're able to right. and everyone else does it, then it's all going to be good. Yep. And that's, right. that's how society should work. And yet people don't want to do that. And right. it's, uh, it's, it sucks, but I mean, that's what Frank Capra in general was pretty much the boss at. He <laughs> took these very humanist stories, whether it was, it's a wonderful life or even a, it happened one night, which was the romantic comedy genre, but he infuses it with these moments of just utter tenderness that, have no real shame, you know, and that's kind of what you got to do if you're the king at it, because uh, in in my opinion, there's really nothing like uh, actual earned sentimentality. There's a there's a quote by Muhammad Ali that that reminds me of. It's a uh, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on Earth. And I feel like that's a that's definitely that's a, good. a sentiment that I I, I I powerfully agree with. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, every Christmas Eve or so, I mean, I don't know if we watched it every year, but me and Emily almost always watch it on Christmas Eve. Uh, I have our usual tradition of making pancakes, uh, sorry, waffles. Oh. Uh, yeah. And just hanging out together and just enjoying the day or enjoying the morning or whatever. Um, and it, 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 it's a good film just in general, but the ending scene is always very emotional for me just because the idea of people actually caring about their fellow man is uh, something that's really wonderful to see, especially in our current climate. I I would completely agree with you. And I would say for me in the Christmas canon, it's pretty much neck and neck between the ending of It's a Wonderful Life and a Scrooge in Muppet Christmas Carol giving away his scarf. Like, Mm -hmm. just, ah, man, that's what we need in the world. He also gives it to a Muppet, too, which is is important. They don't feel cold. Well, I was going to say, there's a really weird dynamic, because it's never really brought up, but there is definitely some, like, differences between humans and Muppets, but that is almost... Anatomically speaking? I guess more in terms of, and I'm not getting into, like, like, treating them like second-class citizens, (laughs) but they are clear... I mean, I'm sorry, but it's true. They they are treated as though though they are a, a different... Now I'm trying Class. to think of like a different cast system. The yeah. worst like possible Muppet adaptation ever, like Twelve Years of Slaves, starring the Muppets or something. Jesus Christ! Just, you know, like, I have no freedom. Like, I just this. I'm I'm sorry, but you put that image in my head, and I cannot express it. Kermit cannot not express str- it. Kermit's struggling in a new spirit. Yeah. Oh my god! Anyway, uh, I blame you. Coming Alex. soon from Jim Henson Studios. Yeah. Um, with with the bad voices that they now have, that's oh great. God. 
It's true. Yeah. The the voices in the new Muppets are not. They don't bother close. me as much as they bother everybody else. But I definitely, obviously, notice a difference. It's <laughs> gonna yeah. say they're, they're close. Uh, so, anyways, it's a wonderful life is number three for me. So mine is inadvertently a stark contrast to the mood and tone <laughs> and the 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 sentiment of of your is this ending. An everybody dies ending. Uh, no, but it sure does make you want to die a little bit. <laughs> Uh, mine is the ending to uh, Kira Kurosawa's 1950 uh, movie, Rashomon. Ah. Uh, Rashomon, uh, I rewatched it recently, and the first line is, I don't understand. And I feel like that is the sort of trajectory that that entire film sort of like goes off of, of trying to square an understanding for events and recollections and perspectives that you cannot cohere into one one form of sense and how it confounds you and how the nature of stories um, can both ameliorate, but also sort of exacerbate the, the traumas and the, and then the secrets and the, the, the foibles that we try to repress. We are in essence, the, 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 the message of the ending is that we are the stories that we tell ourselves and whether or not we think we are good people is all a matter of like n- not only what we choose to remember, but also what we choose to forget. And even the, the, the essence of trying to rescue a child from abandonment is charity for the sake of others is charity for the sake of others. Or is it ma- rather another sort of way of trying to ameliorate that, uh, that, that yawning uncertainty of, our own morality respective to that of others. And I think that that is a powerful, impactive ending. Like, I think that we, we talked about that a lot on our episode. We had an episode with, uh, with Brian. With Brian. Yeah. That was, that was, and I was effusive about that ending and just still sticks out in my mind, uh, to this day. Uh, I'm trying to get Krista to watch that, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah but I mean, you, you, well, I, maybe now she will after you just so eloquently, <laughs> But I'm I'm like look I'm I'm putting in the hours I'm watching a lot of Big Brother okay we're gonna we're gonna get her to hey, watch man. a Criterion film that's not hard to do okay Big it is Brother's great I mean it's it's get, so- get her to sit down for the uh, the three hour Seven Samurai that'll mm. that'll do it oh my god yeah that uh. is, I I've I've only watched it once that is a chore <laughs> for sure yeah I would uh, agree with that yeah but- only because I'm not a big on samurai films mm. no but. Even if you were, like, there are parts of that film that are that's like, a, we didn't need this. Yeah, that's a day. That's that's a that's a that's a day watch. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, I put it on. I literally, I like, it was a Sunday where I realized I had nothing to do, and I was like, oh, I guess I could watch this. So it was like a, I'll watch the first half, and then I'll make a nice little meal, mm-hmm. and then I'll like, it's not that much longer than like something like you know, like The Irishman, where I was pretty much okay with watching that in one yeah. it whatever. But anyway, yeah. uh, I will say uh, the ending of Rashomon too, <clears throat> for me. Uh, after you hear all these stories, you know, that are presented or whatever, and it really drives home when we cut back to the kind of present, you know, scene, so to speak. Right. And I feel like the rain is never more oppressive than in that final ending. Yeah. Because it's not like it's different, but after the weight of the fact that these stories don't match Everything up or whatever. Everything is bearing down on you. And you realize that there's just nothing more oppressive than uh, some kind of agreement of an objective truth that can never be reached. You can, sit, you can sit out the rain, but you cannot 
you you cannot escape the downpour. Yeah, which I was gonna is, say you have is, to leave the, at some which point. Which is the human condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know the fact that obviously like the truth is self serving in right. general. You know, so right. yeah. no, I'm I'm with you. That's a that's a great ending. Yeah. Uh, Dan Jeremy Brooks has a number three, and that number three is from. Rosencrantz and Gilderstein are dead from 1990, mm. uh, starring uh, Gary Oldman and Tim Roth. Is that the one written, by, the play written by Tom Stoppard? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, about the two minor characters from Hamlet that yeah. are really barely in Hamlet, but then this movie presupposes that they Presuppos- have their own. Maybe you know, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, that they have their own inner, you know, lives and right. whatever. And as they kind of walk out in the outskirts of what's happening in the central action and the almost existential crisis that that creates at an almost uh, metatextual level mm-hmm. of not being significant to what's actually important. Right. You're the supporting character of somebody else's story. Exactly. Um, Which is basically uh, a line from a pavement song. Anyway, uh, Dan will appreciate that reference. Um, But he says, it's a howl of anguish at the unfairness of the world uh, spoken by two characters who are so minor that only a guy like Tom Stoppard would give them a voice. And I, I, this is, like I said before, this is a movie that I have seen, and I completely agree that one of the things that did strike me about the movie when I did watch it finally for the first time a little while ago was that the ending really drove home that existential dread that, you know, the whole the whole movie feels like a funeral march of their own doing, you know? Right. And yet it's not until the ending where it's almost like the camera refuses to turn off for a little while because, you know, we know what's next, so right. to speak. Uh, and then to cut to the actual announcement, which is a scene from Hamlet, that Rosencrantz and Gilderstein are dead and right. whatnot. And, and, and how that now has ramifications mm. that it didn't have in the original text. So right. I, I completely agree with Dan. Also, fun fact, that is friend of the show's one of Sarah's favorite movies really? of all time. Okay. Yeah. So... Fun little crossover episode we got going on there. My number three is the ending of Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, When I first saw this um, in the theaters, uh, I mean, I had never imagined that the Coen brothers would make a movie that was so up my alley that I could have dreamt it myself. Uh, I could never have made it, but like, I'm a huge folky, you know, I love these kind of existential uh, Sisyphean odysseys that, uh, you know, a, a character I'm will tired. go through. Yeah, exactly. That's a mood. I'm so fucking tired. Mood, yeah. Exactly. And and so for them to dedicate an entire movie to that mood and to this character, who is both an asshole and yet somehow sympathizable, uh, at least in his plight to gain reverence um especially when it's so unfairly taken away from him uh i absolutely love this ending i mean for it to basically loop back and to essentially say that what you saw in the beginning was actually the ending of his journey which also mirrors the beginning of his journey pretty much drives home the point of what he is feeling inside that he is never going to get anywhere he will always be stuck in this, you know, loop of... Sisyphean. Yeah, yeah, and that he'll never actually break out of it. And in a way, it's his own doing, because at several times, he's actually offered olive branches by so many people that either care about him or at the very least could help him. <laughs> and 
because he refuses to take that olive branch because it is against his, you know, uh, way of life or whatever. But even more importantly, he wouldn't be doing what he originally thought he would be doing because of the death of his musical partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just becomes this truly tragic uh, folk song. He's a prisoner of his own expectations. Yeah. And like he says on stage in the beginning and in the end, you know, if it's never new and it never gets old, it's a folk song. And that is the story of Lewin Davis himself. Mm -hmm. And what I love specifically about the ending is that we see the exact same scenes uh, that we saw earlier in the beginning, and yet each scene goes on for about two minutes longer, and we realize that the context means everything. And not only do we realize the placement of those scenes, which is the beginning was actually the ending, but we also realize that in a way it depicts the repression that he was and is still feeling, which is that he almost like blacks out during these actual pivotal emotional moments. Mm -hmm. And it's not until the very end that the audience is privy to what Lewin himself is leaving out of his own narrative. And it's poignant. It's sad. It's beautiful. It's so many things. um, But I will always basically get enraptured by that ending of inside Lewin Davis. Yeah. I uh, I've wanted to go back to that uh, many times, yeah. and I still have not seen it since we saw it in the theater. Well, don't do it without me. Ago. Someday we uh, someday hopefully soon we will uh, we will make that trip together. Moving on to uh, number two on my list, uh, I had a hard time between number two and number one. Uh oh. Yep, but this uh, I, I decided that this was the, the right choice for number two. Uh, and that is Paul Greengrass's United 93. Oh. Um, if you have never seen this film, and I understand why, because <laughs> this wasn't a, a huge release, and it also is a very... Well, it's, it's also a hard sell. Yeah. Um, it's a, a very abrupt look at uh, what transpired on uh, September 11th, and also, obviously, somewhat um, fictionalized as we do not know the events that happened on uh, United Flight 93, really. I mean, we know some, but very little. Um, so a lot of it is just fictitious. Um, but at the same time, uh, this is just a good film uh, in general. Uh, if you take out the ending, which is absolutely fantastic, the rest of the film is very procedural and very much just factual of here's what happened at this time where this was occurring here here we are at the faa here's what they were doing at this time they're literally joking about oh there's a hijacking ha ha we haven't had this in a while um and uh, you, you you see and this is um this is a a i would say a paul greengrass trope um which is him wanting to give the antagonists a chance to display their point of view in a way that could portray them in a positive light. Mm. Not so much endorsement, but at least, you know, everyone deserves a soapbox type thing. I mean, in most of these films that he's done that are somewhat politically charged, um, this film being one of the biggest examples, but also uh, the film he put out, Netflix. Two years ago that I really enjoyed. Uh, very much was, I don't want to say controversial, but 
um, had a lot of opinions about the way that he presented the film and especially the main antagonist throughout it. I feel like I haven't seen this film. Um, if, if, if and I know a lot of people haven't, and and you should. I I I will make room for it. I'll put it on my on my queue. But I feel like what you're describing is a good thing. Like with with with, with what the quality of that film is, because every single time I think of a a a terrible tragedy or something that happens, the most the the one through line of commonality between how people respond to it is. I don't understand. And really that's what it is. Like that's kind of how I remember what the mood of nine 11 was because I was just like in grade school. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And if anything, the, 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 the nine 11 attacks were sort of my inauguration into a larger, before I even knew that it was an inauguration into a larger understanding of the world outside of even my own lived experience outside of my parents lived experience outside of my social circle that may have existed at that time to understand that there is a much larger world and much larger stakes that include the lives of other people into that. Um, people trying to sort of like trade sort of this information of, of like what happened, who did it, why did they do it? They hate our freedom, other shit like that. It and, and it's like I don't really care how they, why they did it. Um, and thank goodness it was in a pre-Facebook Twitter. I was gonna say we are now. Living, I mean, not that this was ever a small or minor thing, right. but because of things like social media or whatever, we're now in a in an age in which things like Islamophobia right. and, and whatnot are just running even more rampant on a uh, just on a conversational level mm-hmm. or whatever that it's funny because what i dismissed about the movie which having had not having seen it yet when it first came out of like oh is that a cash and you know because i hadn't seen it but like is you know i wondered that especially because that was i think the same year that like world trade center came out yeah or at least around Pro- there probably so i'm like yeah. okay i can't i at the time i'm like i don't have the critical facilities to figure out uh like which one is actually worth seeing right. so i'm like maybe- which one is white house done and which one is uh <laughs> uh this has fallen yeah. Wait a minute. Okay, I was gonna say because White House Down is a good movie, uh, but uh, isn't that just the way? Always producing films that are opposite of one another. Like, I know. Yeah. I was gonna say Deep Impact. The fucking Her- Hercules films that came out a while ago. Oh yeah, that was weird. That was weird. Wait, no, are you talking Hercules or Tarzan? No, it was Hercules. Was it was also two Tarzan. There was also two Tarzans. It was, it was too. Tarzan. I keep yeah. on. That's the one I'm thinking of. That's the point I'm talking about right two now. Two Jungle Book. Panda stuff. Express. Yoshinaya Beef Bowl. Exactly. Uh, you, uh, the movie knocked up. I believe it's Jay Baruchel who talks uh, about yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that there's always yep. there's always something that's competing, competing with it. Whether it's um, Deep Impact, Armageddon, uh, was it Volcano and Dante's Beak, oh, yeah, and yeah. Um, Yoshinoya Beef Bowl and Pan Express. That's pretty great. <laughs> the fuck. Um, yeah. And the other thing I will say is that Alex, you've actually talked this movie up so much, and that's not a bad thing. That the other day I actually bought it on Voodoo because it was four bucks. Did you? Okay. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm like, oh, I'm you know gonna scoop well, it up because a person I trust likes it. I think uh, someday soon in Tucson, obviously you are invited. Yeah. But I think we should do a double feature. Can you talk to me before you make decisions like that, Alex? I think you'll like this one. Oh, 
Did you hear that? I'm just saying. You're literally speaking to the microphone with no, your hand. No, but I'm holding my hand. You're oh, I see. Okay, never mind. Dumbass. Now, <laughs> even though I've seen this film we just talked about, I think we should do a double feature of Inside Lewin Davis in United 93. Much different films. Much different films. As long as we can end with Inside Lewin Davis. <laughs> and I don't mean that because I like that movie, but just because I don't know if I could like, Pretty dour. say goodbye to after watching the- an actual terrorist attack. So, yeah. so yeah. anyways, uh, just finishing my thoughts on this film and the reason why I had it so high on my list and why it was very much in contention for my number one spot. Um, this film just creates this incredible finale. And it, it is just so... I don't even know how to best describe it. Like, it, it is so hard to comprehend what it is talking to someone who has not seen the film. When was the first time you saw it? Uh, it was probably about, probably about like, like, I don't know, like eight years ago or so. Like it's been a while. Yeah. What was like your initial like reaction? to Okay. So my initial reaction to the film was that it was pretty good. Okay. Because again, as I I was mentioning a few minutes ago, it's very procedural. Like Mm -hmm. it's just the idea of at this time, these people were doing this. And at this time they were doing this. And it's a lot of people who are watching events transpire Mm -hmm. and then having meetings or, or conversations about it. Like it's not like world trade center, where the whole film is That's about... That's the one Nicolas Cage, isn't it? Yes. Oh. The whole film's about the action of what happened. Yeah. Like, this film is just about, like, laying out the facts of these are the events that happened. Mm-hmm. The film opens with uh, the terrorists um, in their hotel room um, doing their prayers and then going to the airport. Uh, and then you see everyone just sitting at the airport at the gate waiting for their flight. Mm-hmm. So the thing about the film, though, is that really the entirety of the film and the last 10 minutes are almost like separate entities for me because the first time I saw the film and every time since, there is nothing that can prepare you for the last 10 minutes of United 93. It is concurrently the the most exhilarating and horrifying final 10 minutes of a film you could possibly watch mm. where you know the outcome, but you it's can't... It's a foregone conclusion. You, you can't look away because of how... I don't want to... I don't know what the best word is. You're engrossed in it. You're sort of just... You are, but it it is... And, and it, it is... I would say it is the peak of Paul Greengrass's career because... It encapsulates everything that he appears to value, mm-hmm. whether it is um, creating tension for the audience or um, portraying historical events in a way that uh, gets you to look at it in a different light. Right. Um, the, the, the last 10 minutes of United 93 are literally the most heart-pounding minutes I've ever had watching a film. Mm. And I don't, I could not understand if anyone's saying anything different because you just watch everything transpire with the passengers of this airline flight who have now found out that there were these other terrorist attacks that have taken place 
and have decided to take action into their own hands. Yeah. And it is the moment that they find out that the terrorists do not have a real bomb when things become really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the guy who's flying the plane, who is moving the plane back and forth, mm-hmm. and you have the passengers who are trying to make their way up. They've right. discovered a guy who they believe can fly, mm-hmm. who they're trying to get into the cockpit. Right, right. Like, there is so much going on, and again, it is a marvelous achievement by Paul Greengrass as he has perfectly edited this, had the right music, the right tone, mm-hmm. um, and and the film really stars a bunch of no-names. Like It's a real tight wire act to just, especially like that to be a film that came out like in the immediate radius of that was it wasn't say. immediate it was, it was you know it was years later yeah, like but, it was but, late yeah. 2000s right still but 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 it, it was and now was there was pretty close yeah. as far as someone say someone have, would have said too close but for how how no, no, you know no, i don't no, think no. we had done that kind of like 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 you said, ground zero type right. uh, yeah. reconciliation with past But here here's the thing point. about it, and here's the thing that I think makes it work is the fact that it's about the flight that crashed in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and not about the flight that went into the Twin Towers right. or right, into right, the right. Pentagon. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's what makes this as good as it is because it's the other story that people were like, oh, that sounds heroic. The story that people often overlook. I was going to say, naming your movie World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, and yeah, I could see that. So sure. uh, it's, it's a wonderful finale. It is Paul Greengrass. It is absolute height. And um, it's just a bunch of no names. I mean, literally the biggest uh, the biggest name. Uh, oh, there's two. I, think I just saw somebody. Olivia Thurlby and Cheyenne Jackson are I was the biggest say, names. When I bought it on Voodoo, and I, w- I was like Cheyenne, like because he was in the picture that they used yeah. for the still, and I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, oh, it's it's very random, and he's not famous at all. So, no, yeah. but but he's but the still, most. Still, I was like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Billy Lutterwood is the biggest star of United 93, but, but it lands really well. And it is a, it is a fabulous movie, but it is a knockout ending. Like I watched it for the first time and not in the theater, but at home. And I didn't know what to do after I, I watched the ending. Like I, I couldn't move. Like I was just, I was just paralyzed with like the idea of just watching what transpired in the way that it was edited together mm-hmm. by Greengrass and his film crew. It was so affecting that like you, you were just, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly flawless. Like right. it is, it is just, it is exactly what you want. Like it is, it is probably the way that people felt the first time when they saw someone shooting a gun right. through there. Like it is just like someone has reached out and like grabbed you mm-hmm. and made your body do things that, Physically your muscles contract, yes, in like in like in like a like a visceral way. Like, like your heartbeat is elevated, yeah. from a movie, yeah, and not in like a like Bruce Willis type yeah. way, like a like literally not a gratifying like, way, but it's literally it almost like it like, almost touches on your flight, your flight or fight, yeah, like but but, <laughs> but you can't help but feel for the situation because you right. know it as a historical event, right. But yeah, and then seeing it dramatized on the screen mm-hmm. and done in such a incredible way, uh, it is it is it is fantastic. It probably should have been my number one. Yeah. And someday we should do an episode on it, not because of how great of a film it is, 
Um, but just the fact that it does lay out in such a factual way mm. events that were happening throughout the film and then has a fucking knockout ending that yeah. is just like like just your hair is just flying back from it. It's 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 so good. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I've met anyone who's seen it has not had the exact same thoughts on it. That's been like that's a really good movie, but the last ten minutes were like, whoa. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't even know what to say about that because it, it's 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 so good and it lands so well. Yeah. Uh, other than the plane which crashed obviously. <sighs> What a send-off. What a send-off. Anyway. It's fine. It's been fucking 19 years. No, it's not. Anyway. <laughs> um, Tucson. All right. So my number two ending. Uh, this is another one that I have a... You have not seen? No, that I have a... a no, I have seen this one. Okay. And you know that I've seen this one because I've watched this one with you. Okay. Uh, this is another one that I have sort of a an, an emotional connection to because it was not only... A very good film, but it was also one of your favorite films that you shared with me. Oh. Um, it is 1999's Magnolia. Oh. You look like the perfect fit for a girl in need of a tourniquet. When Amy Mann sung those songs to that last scene where, um, what's his name, the, the actor? John C. Riley. John C. Riley is speaking to uh, his girlfriend and basically making this emphatic appeal to say that he loves this person and he doesn't care what happened in the past and he thinks that she's a good person and that she is deserving of love and that it zooms in on her face. Um, it was so... I, it, it, it could not let me go. It was, it was, it was, it just drew me in and the final shot where it just smash cuts, where it shows her smile at the camera, at the camera and the song itself like goes into its crescendo. I I don't know if you remember this, but I literally clutched my heart because I was so deeply affected by that scene. I didn't notice that probably because I was clutching mine as well. Yeah. I was, I was literally like, I was that really fucking hit me because I was like, holy shit. Like, that's that's what it means to love someone. <laughs> holy shit. Oh, man. Um, yeah, that, that, that was not a – when, when I was putting together this, this list, that was absolutely a no-brainer. It was absolutely going to be up in the upper echelon, if not like a number one or number two. It's like, but it's, it's definitely one of the best endings of one of the best films that I've ever seen. So what's great about that is that I did not include that in my top six specifically because that's my all-time favorite movie. So I almost felt like it was cheating. Because I was gonna say like when I looked at the entire totality of that movie, as much as I love that ending, that's which, not your favorite part of that. Film. I was gonna say which is one of my favorite endings, <laughs> but I'm like every the whole reason why it's my favorite movie is because every scene is practically equal. Like mm-hmm. for me, that magic is found. In frame one, frame two, frame three, and so on and so forth. But I'm completely with you. The first time I ever watched that and any subsequent viewing of it, when uh, Claudia looks at the camera and smiles, is one of the most life-affirming things I've ever seen in all of cinema. And for a movie like that to literally bridge the gap, I mean, you know, it says that we all need each other to heal and to do all these things, to love and be forgiven, and to include the audience in on that emotion is one of just 
it's one of the most stupendous cinematic tricks I've ever uh, been privy to as an audience. Yeah. So I'm I'm completely with you, obviously. Yeah, I I, I don't. There's no other words I can really put to that. It's it's just you have to you have to see it for yourself. You have to experience it for yourself. Um, but yeah, that 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 always makes me like catch my breath every time. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, it's a good one. Dan Jeremy Brooks, number two is. Uh, You'll like this, Tucson, and mm. as will I, um, is from the ending of the movie from 2012, Holy Motors. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I showed you that about, I guess it would have been about seven years yeah, ago. Yeah, I fucking so. love that movie! It's so great. So Dan says it's one of the most hilarious, charming, brilliant <laughs> last scenes ever. Yeah, it it's is. almost indescribable. And he's completely right. It is, I mean, besides the fact that that movie is almost anthology-like in the sense that while it does actually follow a person going on an odyssey of sorts, it is technically him going into these very weirdly segregated sequences where none of them make sense juxtaposed against each other. Mm-hmm. And yet the entire journey feels lived in that he is truly like Alice in Wonderland hmm. going from one moment to the next. And somehow, after an entire movie of mindfuckery... Throws a fucking curveball that you cannot even... That that final scene, which I actually will not spoil. I'm going to spoil the ending of the movie I'm going to talk about in my number two. Fucking non-sequitur. But I will not spoil this one. Not because it's the greatest thing ever, but because it is so, as he describes, Dan, indescribable. That for a movie that throws you a curveball after curveball after curveball... You still would never be able to guess what the final scene of this movie is, and when it happens, it's it, it makes me fucking crack up yeah, every time I watch it's it. It's incredible. I was gonna say Tucson oh loves it too. Oh so my god! Huge fans here yeah. uh, between myself, Tucson, and Dan yeah. for Holy Motors. Yeah. My number two is this is gonna be the one that you might laugh at me, Alex, uh, but. And I think here's the thing. You described a movie earlier, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and I completely agree with everything you threw out that movie, which mm-hmm. is that it was this life-affirming thing or whatever. And I stealthily think that this is a movie that's in the same vein, even if at first glance it does not appear to be so. Okay? I'm pretty sure you know what I'm about to say, but it is David Fincher's The Game. Ha! <laughs> Was that just so I understood? No. Nope. Uh, okay. Okay. Because I thought maybe uh, you had figured it out. No, I hadn't. I, I um, uh, oddly enough, I thought the the film that you uh, thought I was going to laugh at, I, I just was going for the most obvious choice, and I thought you were going to have the Neon Demon on your list. But <laughs> oh no! I mean, I like that ending, but no, no, I'm with you on that. Okay. Uh, even though I love that movie. <laughs> okay, the game to me is genuinely, besides the fact that I think it is a masterpiece, it is the ending that makes me love that movie. And I think that that makes sense in the sense that that's the reason why a lot of people don't like that movie, right? It's like the ending is essentially what you hang your hat upon when you look back at a movie such as that. Mm -hmm. But for me, and this may sound trite or this may sound like I'm coming out of left field or whatever, but I have a similar... Capra-esque reaction to that ending. First of all, 
I take umbrage with anybody who says that the ending of the game, and I'm going to spoil it right now, so skip maybe two minutes or so uh, past me talking, but the ending of the game, if the movie is essentially about Michael Douglas joining, quote-unquote, the game as it was given to him as a birthday gift from his brother played by Sean Penn, and it's this elaborate, almost uh, LARP session where um, he has no idea what in his real life is, quote-unquote, the game, and what is his real life, as he tries to navigate that, and it becomes more and more almost adventurous. Um, By the very end, he is practically driven to suicide by, quote-unquote, the game, and you find out in the final reveal that even that was manufactured by the game, Uh, in this case, the company that uh, puts on this game. And a lot of people thought this was a bridge too far for this movie, and that never made sense to me because every single scene in this movie is a bridge too far. There is nothing explainable about anything that happens prior to that ending that that ending doesn't have the exact same inexplicable weight to it. So for me, just... On it's a like pu- magical realism. Yeah, yeah. On a pure logical level, it never made sense to me why people have a problem with the ending if they like the movie up until that point. Mm. If we put that aside, though, for me, that ending is somehow a wondrous and selfless almost coming together of a community to literally make a better person. And I think that's ultimately what I respond to when I watch that movie. Mm. After he dives and plummets to his own death, which is actually an echo of his own father's suicide, which has clearly always been haunting him and his own brother, who's made other life choices. Um, After he plummets to his death and he lands safely on the big uh, blow-up airbag thingy, whatever you call it, stunt jump. Which which doesn't he go through like a... a, He goes through breakaway... Well, they call it breakaway glass. So even in... uh, even in minor lines, they are actually justifying the reality of it. And I'm not saying that that makes... But it's at a hotel, right? Yeah, it's And it's like end. a solarium above like a... Yes. A, okay. Yeah. But the invitation literally says that the surprise party for his birthday, which is essentially when he makes his fall, will start between... And it's like 8.20 and 8.37. Like, this company has thought it out to the T that they can actually ballpark when they will get him to jump, you know, whatever. And even James Reborn's character shows that this company is not so set on one trajectory, but actually a series of contingencies, because he says to him, oh, I'm just glad you jumped, otherwise I was going to have to push you, you know? <laughs> like, this is just, it's a ridiculous premise, I completely yeah. grant, Yeah. but the emotional catharsis behind it completely speaks to me, and it, maybe it's because I actually have a relationship with a brother where there is some animosity. Right. Uh, I'm... I love my brother, and we're pretty much actually okay as adults. Mm-hmm. We were growing up, we were not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were very much at odds or whatever. And we basically settled into the fact that we are such different people that, you know what, fine. Like, we're cool with that, you know, because we both have grown up or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when I see a movie like this where after he does that, the entire emotional catharsis of this movie is summed up by Sean Penn's character when after he gets up from his air, from whatever, the stunt jump bag, whatever, and he, first of all, he's standing there with that great shirt, which is like, I 
I, you know, I went to Mexico and all I got was a stupid T-shirt, which is funny because he was kidnapped and taken across the border, hmm. you know, whatever. And for him to embrace his brother, who he was always at that point and until that point judging uh, for taking different life choices or whatever, and he embraces him, and literally the entire movie for me is crystallized in one line delivery which speaks to a great ending and it's Sean Penn to him whispering I had to do something you were becoming such an asshole and for the movie to cut from him uh, doing that to then the entire uh, vista of the party and you see just how every single person in the entire movie was involved with this I know that that seems like it's so far fetched for people, whatever. But I it's think a it's a extraordinarily over the top intervention. Exactly, yeah. and I feel like what wins for me in that ending is that that's ultimately a that's what it took. Yeah, and it's a sign of humanity actually coming together. And you could say that a person like Nicholas Van Horten doesn't deserve <laughs> to have his life better. But at the end of the day, isn't that what we want from people, even people we disagree with, to actually learn from their mistakes and to yeah. actually become better people and right. whatnot? And, you know, earlier in the movie, we had a scene where he talks to his ex-wife and she says something and he, like, says something extremely cold, like, yeah, well, that's why I never call her or whatever. And yet at this party, because of everything he's gone to, and it's really a Dickensian tale, I, I liken it to A Christmas Carol mm-hmm. because he's a rich man who is literally humbled to become a beggar and to realize that he has nothing of value um, when he has no money, which means he's valueless. And for that party to then go through that between him and his brother, him and his ex-wife, where he actually pays her an actual amount of respect that she is owed, and then to actually get to the final moment where he's with the uh, girl that he met during uh, the whole game, so to speak, who was an actress during it. And she says, you know, I'm going to the airport. I have to go do a thing or whatever. And you get this weird moment where he briefly contemplates whether this is another extension of the game, whether it's truly over or whatever. Mm. And yet what he realizes in that moment is that it doesn't matter and that the real force of actually becoming a better person or just in general enjoying his life is to go along with it. Hmm. That's all that matters, and he gets him a taxi cab, and he drives away. Well, no, it cuts, technically speaking, before he gets in. In my head, he gets him a taxi cab, Hmm. and they drive away. But I've always found that that's to be what's so lyrically beautiful about that ending, which is that um, we are all technically playing the game, but if if you try to fight it, if you try to poke at the seams, you will get depressed at how manufactured, I think, you know, our lives are at a certain point. I don't mean that we are in the matrix or mm-hmm. anything like that, but we have systems that oppress us or whatever, mm-hmm. but we are the makers of our own path forward. Mm-hmm. And we do have authorial stamps on what we can and cannot do and how we can feel. And I'm in no way slighting, uh, you know, like the, the con- mental illness the or anything like that. conditions of like, even like systemic, like yeah. oppression or, or systemic barriers to one's like own, like capacity to do that but it also like not to dismiss that but at the same time you know freedom is what you do with what has been done to you 
Yes, and it is up to you to claim it, so to speak. And so I ultimately, I find that ending to be gorgeous. I find it to be beautiful. And what I like most about it is that it's not a twist. It is exactly what that film said it was from the very beginning. And I feel like people expect a twist. People expect it to be a dream. People expect it to have a a weirder answer than it is. Mm. But technically speaking, Sean Penn gives them an invitation, says, I bought you the game. The game will start at any time, and you know from that point on he's playing it, and it goes until its natural conclusion. We know the rules, and we're gonna play it. It it is by definition a twist. The first time you view it, um, oh for sure. I mean, you are skeptical of it when you're sure. watching it. Yeah, and I've only seen it the one time, and I was like, the fuck. And there's some parts of it that I I really do find quite silly. Uh, I believe that Sean Penn hands Michael Douglas the bill for it, and he's like, woohoo, this is big. And I, I don't know. There's That's a, a great line, though, yeah. because, first of all, he doesn't say that. I know. I know. I, Second again, of I, all. I was paraphrasing. <laughs> Second of all, after, I mean, that shows you the growth, because we have to do it in shorthand, but he actually doesn't say that. Okay. Sean Penn gets handed the bill at okay. the party, which is actually the f- true sign that the game is over. over it's funny yeah. because Nicholas Van Orton, a man of wealth and money, does not notice that that's the true sign, you know. Mm-hmm. But Sean Penn gets handed the bill, and he kind of looks at it, and kind of giggles a little bit, like, oh boy, because he's not as rich as his brother. And he starts to whatever, and he doesn't have to say anything. It's Nicholas that says, do you want to go half on it? And he goes, oh God, yes. Like, so it's actually more okay. of a selfless moment okay, between good. two brothers, and he—I've only seen it the one time, so. and it was many years ago. Yeah. So no, I, no, no, I, I forgot about it. I was enough, just but, yeah. extrapolating because that is part of the ending too. So. Good. Anyway, I love that movie, but I especially love that ending, uh, the game. Right on. We've made it to number one on our list, uh, and I think Nick will chuckle a little bit at this. Uh oh. Only because we watched this movie last week, and I definitely fell asleep during the ending. No, uh, yeah. no. So uh, I mean, it's great. But... It is, yeah. So uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins is mm. number one on my list, mm. and I have it as number one because it's a film that has both an incredible climax and an incredible denouement. Yeah, and that's I think what draws me to this specific ending because it was really close between Batman Begins and United ninety three. And I think if I thought about it more, I would probably put United 93 at number one, but that's fine. Uh, we're, we're here and I've made my decision, so that's all good. Yeah. You're locked in. It, it's it's too late. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Yeah. So um, Batman Begins has slowly uh, become, in my opinion, very close to being a better film than The Dark Knight is. Mm. And I, I've always been a huge fan of both, um, but over time... The more I watch Batman Begins, the more I pretty much cherish it. There was that one sequence in Batman Begins where it's like, I don't know if it's elliptical editing, where it shows uh, Bruce sort of journeying to the League of Shadows uh, like encampment like over the mountains and through like the, the plains and stuff. That is a fucking incredible scene. Yeah. yeah. It's early in the film, too. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking great. And uh, everything that happens with Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows. Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and then, He's my favorite Batman villain. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the idea of that not being the real person, that it actually is uh, hiding in plain sight, parlor tricks, getting back to all that. 
But the the ending of the the film is fantastic for many reasons. Uh, the biggest one being the fact that he ends up on um, Thomas Wayne's train uh, that's got this device on it that's going to destroy the town's water supply yeah. and basically make everyone hallucinate. I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Uh, okay. Well, you, you kind of stepped all over my one of my big parts of sorry. my thing, but that's all right. I'm sorry. Um, I do think that that line is is probably the defining line of Christopher Nolan's Batman series because this idea of the conflict with Bruce Wayne Batman about the idea of how to cope with the idea of being a hero while at the same time not being a murderer um, and and that was like one of the, the one situation where he was like you know what? I'm going to kill this guy uh, because let's be honest that's exactly what happened mm-hmm. uh, he can say whatever he wants but he led that person to their death. That's what we call Batman justice. Yeah. Uh, but but there's a lot happening in that final scene, whether it is Commissioner Gordon, who is really making that final part of that take place because he shoots out um, from the Batmobile uh, the final parts of the track that would have led up to the main, that would have destroyed all of the towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had him being trusted by Batman you had Batman fighting Razal Ghoul on the train, uh, then you have him leaving him to his ultimate demise. Uh, and it is wonderfully woven together by Nolan. And then we have the the Dinamo of the film, which is actually uh, when we get introduced to the idea of the Joker being the villain right. in the next film, because of course uh, there will be, and obviously, I think at the time, I was going to say at the time that was actually rare, not rare, but like novel. Oh, I, I was to, I was to gonna not go... have the most iconic villain for a Batman film like in the first film. No, I, I think to just have like a it wasn't even obviously it's not post credit, but just to have like a little Easter egg there being like, oh, clearly it's going to be the Joker in the next. But at, at the same time. Um, uh, at least when they commissioned the film, I'm sure that Warner Brothers, uh, Universal, whoever, didn't know if there was going to be a second film right. because Christopher Nolan was, for the most part, an unknown, untested commodity. at that level. Yeah, yeah. And it was a again at the time, and this is 15 years ago, but at the time, uh, a somewhat unusual uh, retelling of a story that had already been told. You know, now obviously much different, but at the at the same time, like at that time, people were like, why is there another Batman movie? Is right. this the, is this Tim Burton again? So, uh, but but the closing line is always one of my favorites ever in any any uh, movie. I never said thank you. Sorry, you keep doing it. I'm sorry, Toussaint just ruining my entire final thing. That's sorry. all right. But anyways, yes, what Toussaint was saying of 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 Commissioner Gordon saying, "I never got to say thank you," and Batman turned around and saying, "And you'll never have to." Um, that's pretty much perfect. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what that relationship is, and exactly what the idea of this masked vigilante who is. Um, doing the police's job for them uh, is, uh, but but it's it's the combination of the finale in the climax and the finale of that denouement um, that perfectly marries that character together and really just lays out exactly what that's going to be. And uh, you know, really, I feel like, and I love Christopher Nolan, and I love all the Batman films, 
but I feel like that's where he stopped trying on that character because he's like, mm, I've done it. Yeah. I have defined this character and now I can just write. I was going to say, there's such a thing as diminishing returns. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think so. I'm sorry that I accidentally stepped on your toes on that. It's all good. It's not the first time and it won't be the last. If anything, I think it's indicative of your point because it's been years since I've actually seen that film. And the fact that I actually remember it that clearly speaks to just how pristine that ending is. No, the the film as a whole is is close to flawless in my opinion. But the last 15 to 20 minutes are so good. good. Especially when it just weaves everything that you've previously seen together. I mean, you have Rachel Dawes involved, you have Razzle Ghoul, you have Gordon, you have Batman, you even have Killian Murphy who rides out on a fucking horse from the the, the, uh, wearing his mask and then gets shot in the face and just like... (laughs) Almost looks like the headless horseman getting carried off into the... Fucking great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and you have Gotham City that has been taken over by this uh, agent that was made by... And using the thing that was made by uh, Wayne Enterprises at the same time. It, it's it's so good. It just, it just perfectly nails almost every story beat and just throws them all together in the same pot. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm completely with you, and I'm glad we rewatched it about a week ago or so. Mm-hmm. I... Did you want to say something to so? He yeah. just wanted to recite another line that no, was about to be said. No, I, so it's like, okay. just kidding. <laughs> I, wanted... I was only going to say that uh, after rewatching it, it did solidify as basically my second favorite live action Batman ever with uh, 89 mm-hmm. being the ultimate. But Batman Begins is probably my favorite modern Batman live action film uh, ever. And you know what? The Jack Nicholson, as I pretty much call it, as I remember it at least, Um, Batman from 89 is still one of my favorite films, and it is right up there with Dark Knight and Batman Begins, but the ending is is great, but it is... That that's a movie that is really based on some of its parts and right, not the finale. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. Because it's fun, but at the same time, it's it's no. Jack- if anything, I almost lose a little interest in the last <laughs> half hour. And I say that as someone who likes that movie more than this movie, where mm-hmm. this has a better ending. Uh, but I'm I'm with you for sure. He stole my balloons. <laughs> Tucson. What to, were you gonna say? To chime in one last thing. Okay. Yes. I think there's something fascinating for the fact that for all of the the Nolan films, the the defining MacGuffin or plot device is always some type of symbol or product of corporate malfeasance where you have like the nerve gas and then you have like Batman's whole like panopticon apparatus that allows him to like be able to like search everybody's phones and basically see everything. And then you have like the third film where it's like that that I, I can't remember what it was it got turned into well, a bomb or yeah you, you, you have his um his energy ener- energy reactor being yeah. turned into a nuclear bomb it's always it's always it's always it's always something yeah i mean literally at one point alfred or somebody says something like well how would they ever be able to actually manipulate the you know water molecule their atoms like that there's no machine that does that well there we is, made actually. it <laughs> Yes. I do I'm also motherfucker. I do also like when Alfred at the end of that um I think this is a golf club that is referenced earlier in the film for whatever reason mm-hmm. but he he knocks out one of the members of the League of Shadows and then he just says I hope he went to member of the fire brigade. Just the way he says it is just so silly and at the same yeah. time you're like oh you were from the Muppet Christmas Carol you get a pass <laughs> for life. <Aww. laughs> With a thankful heart. <laughs> Tucson. 
You're number one. All right. My number one shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone, let alone any of the two people at this table. But Ooh. it is the ending to Andrew Nicole's uh, 1997 film, Gattaca. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. It is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, it is one of my favorite endings of all time. Uh, I feel like I, I've already spilled so much on on the meaning of this ending for me that it feels redundant. Uh, I would say, like, go listen back to our Gattaca episode just because I basically just, like, wax poetic about, like, w- what that film is to me. Why is it such a defining film for me? Um, but, yeah, I think that it's honestly one of Ethan Hawke's best performances. I think it's some of the best performances that any of those actors have actually been involved with. Um, it's absolutely, without a question, Andrew Nicole's uh, best film that he has ever that he's ever made and if anything else like uh like you know his lighter films are, are are okay but i feel like it's just it's such a steep such a steep like decline drop off it's it's a steep yeah. drop off and, and it's it's the curse of the 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 freshman effort but uh damn what an effort what a damn effort yeah really punch a hole in the stratosphere uh so yeah that's my my favorite ending okay I'm right there with you, Matt. That's one of my all-time favorite movies, mm-hmm. and I one of the things I remember about that movie, whenever I look back on it, is the kind of melancholy in Ethan Hawke's narration mm-hmm. as the final uh, switch or whatever right. comes to pass, and it's like technically a victory, but it also seems at the expense of a, a sense of humanity that's mm-hmm. not exactly... Uh, fair. I I'm, I won, but what did I have to give up in order to win? And is that part of me that wanted to go still with me? Did I have to forfeit that in order to earn purchase to that? Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We are at Damn. number one. And for Dan Jeremy Brooks, his number one is... In a Lonely Place from 1950, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart. Mm. And he says, Are there any sadder words in the history of cinema than Gloria Graham's sorrowful lines at the end, which are, Yesterday, this would have meant so much to us. Now today, it doesn't matter at all. Mm. Uh, as someone who's seen that movie and loves that movie, the ending is genuinely one of the things that makes that movie. It is uh, ultimately a, a film in which a trajectory is like a runaway train, where once it left the station, unfortunately there was no other place it was going to end up, and that's the ultimate tragedy for those two main characters. And if somehow they were able to, shall we say solve their problem before it got to the station it would have been okay but the train was able to actually get to that conclusion and essentially the two of them reached this impasse that is ultimately irreconcilable and it's just one of the most tragic things because they could technically stay together but things have been said things have been done and it'll never be the same therefore it's it you know it's not like it was and and mm. it's just an ultimate tragedy it's it's so good i totally recommend that movie my number one is a movie that i actually it's funny cuz it's like my number 2 film of all time but i actually don't i think tout this director or this film that much in the recent years 
like for sure when I was growing up, this was like what it was all about for me. Mm. But my number one is the ending of Wes Anderson's Rushmore. Um, mm. I grew up, I mean, Rushmore itself, and I think this speaks to the ending. Rushmore, I always pinpoint as the moment I got into film. I, I rented it from the library when I was 15, I think, or something like that. I certainly liked movies before that, but I rented it from a library. I watched it once, did not like it, mm. and watched it the next day. <laughs> like I had no real reason as to what the impulse was to somehow reevaluate a movie that I was not feeling, but also I guess was feeling in some way where I would actually rewatch it the next day, you know, instead of just watching something that I actually liked or just whatever. Just kind of like reconcile your feelings with it. Exactly. And then it was like a straight shot the other direction where I was like, oh, okay, now that I see point A, point Z, I know, you know, whatever, I can understand what Wes Anderson is doing, so on and so forth. But for me, besides the fact that I absolutely love that movie, that ending, which for me is really just everything after the play that Max Fisher puts on, which I love that play too, but the cast party that happens in the aftermath is one of just the most beautiful mise-en-scenes ever captured uh, on film. You have... Every major character, every minor character, every tertiary character showing up in Max's play, either on stage or in the audience. And when the play is over, they're all forced to mingle in the aftermath of essentially what is Max Fisher, the uh, teen at the center of it all, played by Jason Schwartzman, was essentially his doing, you know, his matchmaking, his lies, his uh, friendly flirting, you know, all these things. And they don't come to a head because technically the movie's already resolved before this point. But now we are going to see these people kind of exist in their trajectory that they're now going to exist in from this point forward. And we see Max finally grow a little bit, which is hard for a 15-year-old and 16-year-old, but he's finally conceded that he is a young person and he has a lot to learn, and that's why the faces comes on with ooh-la-la. You know, I wish that I knew what I knew now when I was uh, younger. Uh, Blair's at the end. And now we see him basically bring all these people together in a in a way that they didn't quite realize that they were being manipulated to be in the same time and space. Uh, and on the one hand, it's kind of Wes Anderson trickery. You know, it's, mm. it's his way of getting people in these... Uh, picture-perfect, you know, cinemascope-esque vistas where it's just like... um, You would almost think that it was sterile in the way that it uh, pans from one to another because it's so meticulously choreographed because everyone would would have to hit their mark or whatever. But I feel like Rushmore, before he got super into that and super down that rabbit hole, and I think the following films are good because of that, but was the last time when he still had uh, some last vestiges of almost a sense of spontaneity that he just doesn't have anymore. And it's okay that he doesn't because he's so good at meticulousness. (laughs) But with Rushmore, um, you know, with him telling, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Bill Murray's character that he can dance with his girlfriend and these really cute moments of where a character lets off the break a little bit, which also feels like Wes Anderson, 
uh, in the entire movie being so meticulous, it's also kind of stepping back from the director's chair a little bit to let these characters breathe a little bit and have their happy ending that's completely earned by them and lived in. I just think it's a gorgeous uh, scene. I think visually it's amazing. Obviously, the needle drop of the faces, ooh la la, is uh, just fantastic. And um, the final moments in which we see Max Fisher dancing with Rosemary, the teacher, and it now no longer has a creepy connotation. It has this um, realization between the two of them that there was something there, because technically he lost a mother, and she lost a person, uh, in this case, you know, her husband, who was a student at this, you know, uh, uh, school, whatever, uh, who reminded her of you know max fisher and she hasn't quite moved on from that so there is nothing creepy about that in and of itself and now that the two of them have shed away what it is that they were projecting onto each other and they can just actually uh support people exactly and support each other um uh, as two human beings uh it it's just it's gorgeous. I absolutely love it. And the slow motion fade as the two of them are center stage dancing while every other supporting character is in slow motion dancing uh, uh, beyond them and to the left and to the right and whatever. It's just one of the greatest final scenes I've ever seen in anything. So, can I say? Yeah. Um, it has nothing to do with Rushmore. Okay. But uh, <laughs> there was a film that I had pegged that I thought you would have definitely had on your list that you did not. Uh, Whatever I, you're about to say before you say it, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to be mad now that I didn't say it. Okay. So let's see. I am blown away that you did not have uh, the original version of The Vanishing on your list. Oh, that wasn't my honorable mention. Okay. I had four movies that I wrote down, mm-hmm. and that actually pretty much was there. Yeah. So I would say in spirit it is. So at least it wasn't something so far off where I didn't think about it. You know, I mean, uh, when I was thinking about, because it's not, wouldn't be in mine, or wasn't even in my list, but I was like, man, this seems like like a, the ending that would stick out. Now, now it, it's certainly, and I, I appreciate where you went with a lot of yours, because it's definitely a little more hopeful in uh, some <laughs> of the endings towards the top of your list, where that ending is is as bleak as you can get, pretty much. I was going to say, Planet of the Behaves mostly kind of counted as that nihilistic twist ending type thing. There's a quota. Yeah. But hmm. no, literally two endings that I left off and we can all go into honorable mentions if we want, yeah. but was the vanishing and do the right thing. Oh um, yeah. Do the right thing for me. You just talked about the vanishing, so I'll say a quick moment about do the right thing. Mm-hmm. For that whole thing obviously to have that climax in the streets with the uh the, the murder of Radio Rahim by the cops as right. they speed away and the, the whole thing boils over. Literally, what I love is that the ending after that has uh, Mookie going to talk to um, Sal. Mm. And that so whole good. scene is so, so good, good, so uncomfortable because technically I do think Spike Lee struck the right chord of like neither party is actually wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's this uncomfortable... And, and I'm not saying that Sal faces as much injustices as right. uh, Mookie, but the events that transpired were pretty much unbecoming of who they think themselves 
you know, mm-hmm. are and whatnot. Yeah. And how Sal has actually been at least generous compared to others, to his neighborhood and to his community. Mm-hmm. And for Mookie to kind of forget that in an instance for a understandable moment of justice and mm-hmm. whatnot. And how that's irreconcilable because technically they are from different walks of life. Right. Uh, it's just one of the most painful things I've ever had to witness in yeah. watching a movie. So those are my two honorable mentions. <laughs> I, I, I had three. Okay. Uh, um, one of which was another Paul Greengrass film as oh. he uh, really hits the endings pretty well, I think. Uh, and that was Captain Phillips, which I thought oh, was yeah. a fantastic ending. Uh, just the way everything goes together. And then we have the um, guys being killed in the, in the boat. Uh, and then you have everything with Tom Hanks uh, in his exam afterwards. The exam trauma. is specifically. I yeah. remember very little about that movie. I remember liking it, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it since the theater. Mm-hmm. But that exam is the thing I remember from that movie. So wonderful uh, in a in a horrible way. The whole, but... like, I'm okay, I'm okay. That's not my blood. But, uh, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of his best performances. I would agree. I would agree with that. Uh, Enemy of the State was also on my list. Okay. Um, I don't have we ever. Have I have we never that? actually watched okay. it. Yeah, I've yeah. meant to watch it with yeah. you. I'm a huge fan, um, and I know you are not a big Will Smith fan, but uh, there's a lot of other people in that, including Gene Hackman, yeah. uh, John Voight, uh, also Tom Sizemore uh, makes a random appearance, uh, and that film has a knockout ending, and it's great. Uh, and the other one on my list, and I, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, so that's that's no good. Oh, yes. Uh, it's a film I've only seen once, so it's why uh, it wasn't Well, that's even... more than one of the films that two saw. But it's a film that I didn't expect when I watched it to have as good of an ending as it did, but it was just so fantastic that I just couldn't stop thinking about it when I was putting this list together. And that is the end of the horror, uh, the original um, horror film, uh, Poltergeist. Mm. Oh, yeah. That's a... That's a like that's a tonal shift yeah. in that in that finale, and it is fantastic. <laughs> if you were on its wavelength, yeah. Have you ever seen that original? I've never seen the original. Oh man, it's pretty good. I saw the remake. I thought, <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty campy, which is surprising. But then it, that ending yeah. comes, and it's surprisingly not necessarily dark, but like Did Steven Spielberg. Uh, Toby Hooper is the credited is director? there is there contention as to who was but technically credited? there's the long-standing not even rumor but account that steven spielberg stepped in and Did i would job. say so, second unit directed yeah. in quotes <laughs> so kind of like the whole case of like dread and alex garland yeah exactly. uh, okay that's yep. that situation now but at any rate um the ending is definitely the star of poltergeist even mm. though there's it's explosive yeah. it is and it is like there are moments of it where the characters are almost living the audience's thoughts through their like there's there's literally a time when the daughter's like, What is happening? <laughs> I don't know, it's it's pretty great. I'm it, just surprised that you have mentioned a horror film and I am not. I know. Yeah. I have two because I had Saw Two and this. Oh yeah, really. You had actually one in your list too. Yeah. yeah. No, but um I, I, I get a need to re uh uh, revisit uh, Poltergeist here sometime, probably this Halloween season. Yeah. But it's a really good film, and especially the ending so good. I have yeah. two honorable mentions. I yes. didn't write down, but uh, I feel like do merit uh, mention. Uh, the first is the ending to the original Hellboy, Gimerald de Toro's Hellboy. Okay. Uh, just because that's one of my favorite superhero films, and I feel like 
it best sums up what the whole sort of like message of that film is, is that, you know, Hellboy proves that he is his father's son and, you know, his father is not necessarily who he came from, but the person who raised him. And I feel like that is uh, like when uh, the, the, the one guy, his, his assistant, like he grabs the, uh, the, the crucifix or whatever, and he holds it up and he's like, remember who you are. And I thought that was is, like, is that, the, is that the character is played by Doug Jones? Or yeah, that? that's the one okay. that I think that's, the one who's played by no, Doug Jones is that the one who plays uh, uh, Abe Sapien? Yeah. No, no, no. It's no, not, that's it's, not him. It's not the one who oh. plays Abe. It's the 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 fish out of water BPRD uh, agent who is sort of flirting with uh, the girl who's oh. the pyrokinetic uh, oh. person. The one who's supposed to be like his new like Hellboy's new handler after his uh, old handler like retired or is killed or something like that. Oh, okay, I got not you. Jeffrey Tambor, right? Maybe. Um, but it's 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 a, while, it's just a very affecting um moment uh that sort of like wraps everything up and like you know he's like kissing his his lover and stuff like that i thought it was really beautiful i it's not an honorable mention but on my original list of 40 i had the shape of water on that shape because of, shape, of water, shape of water has a okay but it it has a uh, the the ending especially with michael shannon's reaction when the creature becomes a monster and is pretty much goes look, ahead and murders him is pretty great. I looked up the uh, the poem at the end and I actually did I did find the source of it, but like yeah, that's a very beautiful poem. It's like I'm unable to perceive the shape of you. I feel you all around me. It's like my heart is at ease, and I was just like, yeah, that's that's exactly what I what I got out of the the title when I even when I just saw the the poster for the first time. Like that was really really beautiful. Uh, my second ending, my second uh, honorable mention, uh, is one that I do not uh, mention without some trepidation to it, just because I have a very uh, conflicted relationship to this film, in that I, I, I don't know if I can recommend it in good conscience, and yet it is still an, an ending that. Uh, stays with me and is still probably one of my favorite endings uh it is the ending to the anime film kite oh we thought you were gonna say prometheus <laughs> uh no we were literally like locking eyes no to be like prometheus no um so <laughs> if you're not aware of what kite is uh it was a direct to video anime film about a female assassin whose parents are killed and she is basically adopted by a renegade like police lieutenant who basically uses renegade. her who uses her as a as sort of like a, a contract killer, um, basically working within this sort of network of contract killers throughout the city in order to basically execute contracts and how she falls in love with another uh, male uh, assassin and how eventually it comes to a head where she where both of them kill their mutual handlers, free themselves and are about to run off to, with one another into the sunset until um, uh, basically she's staying back at the apartment, um, packing up her stuff and getting ready to go. Uh, her lover is um, getting rid of, rid of their weapons, buying some food and going to go back. And he is killed in an indiscriminate act of violence by someone who turns out to be another one of these assassins in this network. And basically it comes back to the scene of her back at her apartment. Um, and she's like, well, yeah, he'll be, he'll be here soon. And then you hear like the creaking steps of somebody going up the stairs 
and you see you hear the door sort of like creak and you see her look at the camera and then it just fades to black the reason why i like that ending so much is because i have watched a shit ton of anime in my lifetime and i have never it's seldom if i have ever actually found an anime ending that actually ends on ellipsis that actually ends on a note of ambiguity. I was going to say ambiguity I, is not. It's not. It does. It's yeah. not common in anime. I mean, and it's that's so a genre in which OVAs and so many other right. things are prominent. Right, and and it's just it just it sticks with me. It's such a fucking great ending. Uh, the reason why I uh, have a conflict with Kite is because there are two versions of Kite. There is the. Uh, the PG-13 version of Kite, and then there is the hentai version of Kite. And the hentai version of Kite is fucking revulsive. It is probably one of the most, like... Obviously, you've seen it. It is... Yeah, I have. (laughs) I have, and it's it's fucking... Footage? Would you say is added? Like, is it like a monumental difference uh, of like? Let me. Is it like five minutes, or is it more like? Oh, there's an actual half hour. I'm of, I'm I'm okay. looking up the, the. My other question, while you look that up, is at any point does when the female assassin is about to kill someone, does she ever say "Go fly a kite"? No. Okay. Just, no. Just wanted no. to know. Um, for it, my own thanks for sake. clarifying. It is. That's, I feel like something we were all wondering. Okay, let me see. So the original version is fifty minutes, and oh, I, I believe okay. I believe that the um, the actual like edited version of itself is like uh, no the the actual runtime for the original is sixty minutes. The uh, the PG thirteen version is forty five minutes. Oh, okay. So the the long one is sixty minutes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, you said this was called kite. Yeah. Just gonna write that down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. That the thing is, is that if you if you if if you take the PG thirteen version, it's basically the anime equivalent of Leon the Professional, a oh. film which itself has its own fucked up sort of like history with it, as I'm sure you are all aware. But not graphically so. Not graphically so. I not- mean, it it that film literally laid out what the rest of Natalie Portman's career was going to be. Yeah. Of her just fending off people who are sexually charged from her. Leon the Professional is, I feel like, one of the first films me and Alex watched together at home. Not like the first, but like that was like... Sounds right. Because I had never seen it, you had never seen it, Mm -hmm. and I had a copy, and we were like, oh, we should find a way... Uh, and that's probably the last time I've seen it, even though I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. me as me as well. But it it it's it's crazy that Natalie Portman has been dealing with this shit ever and since. And Moby, <laughs> strange ways are happening. Same no. place I've never gone. But 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 that that, like, that literally defined the rest of her careers up to this point at least. That's another thing. Born Identity. I yeah. love I love the the needle drop for Strange Ways. That's it's incredible. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. Oh, very good. Uh, anyone out there who has uh, a top six favorite film endings, please send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail dot com. 
Or if you just want to listen to this episode, as you already are, and any other episode, you can always find us on FilmTankShow.com or find our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, numerous other places uh, where you can find us at Film Tank Show. So, not sure what's going to be in our next episode. We've, we've had a few ideas, but we haven't really landed on anything yet who knows so. what the future will hold that's true <laughs> it's 2020 baby <laughs> oh that's way too true so um not sure but uh we'll have something coming up here pretty quick uh and until then thank you very much to everyone who is listening from tucson egan nick cheney myself alex diekman as always uh it was a pleasure doing this episode with you guys and it was a pleasure doing the episode for everyone who listens uh at home so Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time.